Jacob, and this is uh, our guest, David, and you're listening to Best Worst Podcast number 28. 28. Cheers. What are we we supported by this uh, week, Doug? Uh, This week we're supported by the LeFroy Quarter, excuse me, not the Quarter Cask, the QA Cask, which is similar to the Quarter Cask, except it's uh, double-barreled in oak. Yeah, it's um, for LeFroy, it's surprisingly Mm. mellow on the palate. But we've also, um, our guest David Larson, who uh, reviews... Film for uh, Metro Magazine has also brought over the uh, Garage Project Triple Day of the Dead, um, which is a black lager that's flavored with chili. And wh- what else is in there? Uh, Chipotle. Tell me what Chipotle. else is in there, Jacob. Uh, tequila barrels has a complex mix of spice, oak, smoke, and chocolate. And it's very, very nice. Yes, it is very, very nice. So it's got a lot of everything, and it's really incredible, which is a pretty good segue into the NZIFF, I think, don't you reckon? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's a few weeks after, but uh, I think we all needed a little bit of sleep to recover for various uh, Yeah, I think reasons. I had my health breakdown post-festival. I had my health week, breakdown during before. festival, which oh, right. is less convenient for seeing movies, but uh, didn't keep me incapacitated. Oh, yeah. um, and I think David may have seen as much as both of us combined. Yeah, it's uh, I had a pretty full festival for me. I saw about 50 films, which was definitely as many as I'm capable of seeing and remaining even slightly coherent. In retrospect, are you glad you saw that many? Do you I wish re- you'd seen fewer? I, um, or is I that really right? am glad. It was, it was a great mix. I I had the experience of seeing slightly more of, of my favorite films in the first week than in the second, which is slightly unfortunate. But I also think that by the time I reach the second week, my tolerance for certain types of film has gone way down. So it becomes more likely that I'm going to have less good experiences. And that's fine. I really I want to get to the end of the festival feeling that if I'd tried to see more films, my brain would have exploded, which is exactly how I did feel. <laughs> I had the same sort of thing, actually. Mm-hmm. Second week wasn't quite as many highlights as the first week. Mm. My second week, I just didn't make it to. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, was, I was just that I fell asleep during a couple films during the first week, and anything oh, that no. was after eight thirty, um, I wound up losing four tickets, and I hadn't bought my second week tickets in oh, advance, right. <gasps> and I just wound up pretty much bailing except for one film at the end of the second week and um you had some good film tickets for that second week too i seem to remember i uh didn't uh, you miss the forbidden room i missed the forbidden room twice we'll talk about that later um i i missed my ticket for it once and then i was going to see it a second time and that and I even took off work because I had a dentist appointment, but it was a root canal. It was disastrous. Um, anyway, the side point. My question, though, is like, you know, and I think for some people, if they hear 50 films, they're like, oh, you must have seen everything. But as we know, um, we've just <laughs> no, been through and worked no. out between the three of us who still all saw a fair few amount of films compared to the average bunter that we've only seen. Like, there's only four or five films that all three of us have seen. Um and there's literally probably a hundred films on the program that you think, didn't see. Yeah, so, easily. I was chatting with my editor, Simon, at the end of the festival, and he said, you know, it sounds like you had a really great festival. I had a really great festival. We saw maybe three films in common. Mm, and that, yeah. that is, that's part of the frustration of it, I suppose, the sense that there's always someone out there having a great time that you're not going to have. <laughs> Combined with, I think, the increasing urgency of seeing things during the festival that won't come back, that a film yeah. like While We're Young that sounds... Like something, oh, I could wait for afterwards. That's got Ben Stiller. It's got Naomi Watts. It's a bright comedy. Of course that's going to come back. No, it's going straight to video this month. Yeah. You know, Most Violent Year, Ex Machina. These... Oh, yeah, I, I find that kind of frustrating because yeah. um, those are the kinds of films that I would normally just 
I'd not want to block out at all for festival because you yeah. want to pick the films that really aren't going to show up anywhere. Um, I stopped doing that a while ago because because of exactly this, um, yeah. and also because of a conversation I had with the distributor where he said some of our decisions about what we release is actually made during the festival. So if you choose yeah. not to go to the thing because it will come back, that it might not come back yeah, because come you didn't back. go yeah. to it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Which I, gets very annoying. See, I made the decision of going of the, a lot of the things I booked were the very art house things that I knew would never come back. Yeah. And I found that maybe it was also because I was sick during a lot of it, but I found like with the exception of while we were young, which was actually a really much needed palate cleanser that was like, it was too much all back to back to every night be kind of like suiting up to go into battle yeah. with the film. Oh. Um, and, and that actually those palate cleansers are kind of important. But I guess my question for you is even, you know, how, how did you pick those films? Cause I know that um, uh, you don't, you are even more spoiler averse than we are. And um, some of the films that I know that you wound up loving are directors that, like uh, Yorgos Lanthimos and Roy Anderson, who you didn't actually have any experience with. Where I know, as I know Jacob like, and I were both explicitly looking forward to those. Mm. So, and Guy Madden being another director that I really love and was gutted to miss. And I think this was your first experience with him as well, right? Yes. Um, my protection against spoilers is partly my increasingly fallible memory. Um, as I... <laughs> <laughs> 20, 20 years ago, if I heard anything about a film ever, it would just lodge in my brain and I would never forget it. And it used to drive me crazy. Thankfully, I've lost that capacity. Um, so I would just read the festival descriptions for the things that I didn't really know I wanted to see and try to base it partly on that. And honestly, an awful lot of my decisions were made by the timetable. Um, right. when, I, when I ranked all the things that I knew I had to go to, it then be, there were an awful lot of things that were ruled out, just incompatible with those choices, so I'd go to the things that fitted in. Was there any editorial imperative that yeah. you have as part of your coverage of Metro? No, was... I had total freedom to choose whatever That's I liked, which, That's was, which was fantastic. And I, I honestly, I think they got better coverage that way, and they knew that they would, yeah. so clever of them. Great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, if you haven't read David's um, film blogs on Metro, they um, were a real highlight of this yeah, year's fantastic. film coverage, um, especially... So. Um, not just um, in terms of the quality of the writing, but also that they were occurring contemporaneously was something that I thought was incredibly impressive to be going to the mat every two days and um, giving thoughtful and wide-ranging coverage um, was is a real trick. And to keep, and that, keep that going for the entire festival and through 50 films yeah. is not an easy task. You blogged task. all 50? Uh, no, I... Don't know how many I blogged. I should add it up. I just tried to write about the ones that I was most enthusiastic about, and in, oh, yeah. maybe in a couple of cases, um, Arabian Nights being one, um, the ones that got my goat the most. But honestly, I I wrote about that mostly because it's just such a huge film, and it I, I just felt like it needed to be covered, yeah. and also because um, because of vagaries of scheduling. At the point where I sat down to write about it, I didn't have a lot else to write about oddly right um, so mostly I was just writing about the ones that I loved so what was the did you have any six film days I think I only had one five film days and mostly they were four and oh. three film days wow I, well I used to actively seek out five film days and I've <laughs> found over the last few years that that works slightly less well for me than it used to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless they're exactly the right five films. Yeah, yeah. How long have you been going to the Film Fest for? Like, how long? Oh, really? Only since 2008. Okay. Um, in, okay. in, in the way that we talk about going to the Film Festival. Before that, I would... Before that, I had young children. I didn't have a great deal of money, and I would pick and 
choose the occasional thing to go to, but I couldn't really go all in the way we like to. Right. And um, before that, I was out of the country, so my film festival experiences are kind of, before that, go back to student days. So how was your, um, in terms of the overall experience of the festival, before we get into specific films, did you have any impressions of this year as distinct from other years for you? No, I I find that hard to answer. Um, Even the years when I've had fewer hits than I want to, and you get years like that, I haven't felt like it reflected the festival so much as it reflected my unlucky choices. There there may have been a few times historically where I've walked away thinking, you know what, the festival did a really bad job of describing that in their program, and I I was robbed. Um, But on the whole, I think they're, they're pretty good at truth and advertising. If a film is likely to be challenging or cute or strange they find a way to say so and it's caveat emptor um yeah so as to my experience of this year i just had a great experience great. I, I, I od'd on film if anything i wish i'd taken slightly more risks towards the end um i foolishly set myself up to see an italian comedy on the last day thinking that that would be an easy palate cleansing experience forgetting that i tend not to love Italian comedy and it was very very broad and mainstreamy mm. and I yeah um, that was an error if I'd seen something more challenging I might have had more fun but by the same token on the second to last day I saw Under Electric Clouds which I loved and completely failed to get my head around and had I seen that in no. the first weekend um, I tell myself that I might have understood it although in fact that's for good. most reports nobody's understood it <laughs> Uh, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure about that. I think um, I'm kidding myself. I also think, I'm just looking over what uh, you'd seen, it seems like for the most part you're pretty light on the documentaries, proportionate oh, yeah, that's to true. Um, the the programming of the festival, which yeah, was very yeah. documentary rich this yeah. year. Yeah, um, I have, to be honest, I have a minor and probably unreasonable um, prejudice against documentaries because... I've had so many experiences of finding that the documentary was reducible to its informational content. Right. Um, so it's not formally interesting. It, does, yeah. it doesn't work as a film. Yeah. It's just, it would have made a great magazine article. And in several cases, documentaries that I've gone to, I had previously encountered as magazine articles and walked away thinking that was just a list of facts that I already knew. Why didn't they do something interesting? Did you see them? Going Clear? Um, no. Nah. No, no, I, I'm, I specifically dislike Alex Gibney. Right, um, okay. I, he's yeah. quite manipulative, dishonest, um, and, and just in general, I don't like him as a filmmaker. I saw his, I saw his last two. I saw the um, We Steal Secrets. I, I, that one in particular got my goat. All sorts right. of things about the editing of that film struck me as really not intellectually honest. Yeah. Um, even though, I mean, there was there was a lot from that that I didn't know and, and was pleased to learn. It was still a film that left me thinking this is not a filmmaker I entirely trust and for for this kind of film in particular um, when you're making a film about WikiLeaks of all things I really want to feel that I'm in safe hands yeah fair um, enough rather than that someone is not declaring his agenda I am um, I mean I, I actually tend to have some of that same bias as well and um, this year because I did some coverage in advance for Lumiere and some of it was contingent on what we could access beforehand. Mm. And a disproportionate amount of that was documentary. documentary yeah. And I wound up having a really great experience with a number of documentaries that made me rethink my approach. Um, yeah. uh, Western, uh, Pervert Park, Welcome to Leith, 
and City of Gold, which actually was a film I didn't like oh. that much when I first watched it, and has snuck up on me, and now I'm really obsessed with revisiting. So many people have um, raved about that one. Yeah, and and they're all films that don't fit under that sort of yeah. You know, yeah. um, actually, Wiki- Wikipedia illustrated Wikipedia yeah. document that you're uh, describing that is endemic to yeah. far well, too many I, documents. I need to underline this is a prejudice of mine, and in particular, um, those those films that you're describing, those four were ones mm. that I I discussed with people who'd just been to see them during the festival, and I did come away thinking, you know what, I really missed the boat on documentaries this year. I should have been a bit mm. gamer. Mm. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I saw a few that were not too bad. Like I mean, I, I think I probably tend to see more than I did this year, but uh, usually find there's a, a sort of a colourful range. I, I also find that like I don't mind. Uh, I guess a bit of pedestrian filmmaking if the topic is interesting enough. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't want to make too many of those. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that, that's fair enough. Well, yeah. I mean, at, at the milder end of the spectrum, I suppose I had that experience with Best of Enemies, which is a, a very, it's a, it's a meat and potatoes competent telling yeah. of an entertaining enough story. I was glad to see it. Wouldn't have minded not seeing it. It, yeah. was, it was fine. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. Um, well, I thought we might dive into, um, uh, and the upcoming list won't have many documentaries on it because we've chosen films that either two of us or all three of us have seen to talk about since uh, that seems like a good way to get some dialogue going rather than our usual method of, of endless speculation, which uh, <laughs> is, is quite common in our preview episodes. Um, and so I thought I'd start with what might be one of our most contentious films, which is a film that played as the uh, centerpiece, which was a pretty daring uh, choice for a centerpiece. Gosh, and I, wasn't it? Um, the Assassin by Ho Shao Shen. Um, just to give a start, um, I, what do you think of it? I really liked it. Yeah. Yep, same. Right, so you, you, you two were both big fans of The Assassin. Yeah. I really was. Yeah. Um, I, had a, I had a very peculiar experience watching it, but I, I walked out really happy and really wanting to see it again. And have you seen uh, Ho Shao Shen films before? Or uh, your... No, I've just heard about them and okay. realized that I probably should have seen a, a few of them. Yeah. I, and yourself? I, don't, I didn't actually check the IMDb before coming in. I don't think I have. Millennium, Ma- Millennium Mambo and Cafe Lumiere Cafe, Cafe are Lumiere, probably yeah. his biggest uh, yeah. name ones to this yeah. point. No. Um, and I've seen a few of his films, and I, I was quite excited by the promise of a Wuxia film by him, which I think mm. I rambled on at great length in our previous one. Um, Would you describe it as a Wuxiao film, having seen it? I would no, no. <laughs> uh, but it was it was billed as a Wuxiao film, which yeah, is part of my. Yeah. Um, it has very little interest in being a Wuxiao film to no. the point where, uh, while one fight is happening, they um, just completely direct their uh, camera elsewhere yeah. to ignore the fight, <laughs> and 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 so I, I'm willing to accept that part of my disappointment with the film might be affected. By that part of it might have been affected by that. I had um, a most violent year immediately after that, and it was a fifteen-minute oh, delay time gap to get from one to the other. And the start of Assassin happened fifteen minutes late, oh. uh, and so oh. uh, there was a bit of impatience oh, yeah. uh, that was built in. Uh, and I think we can all agree, regardless of our opinions, that this is not a film for the impatient. No, no. Um, you really do not want to be sitting there <laughs> checking your watch. Yeah. No, yeah. no, you want to be yeah. just kind of letting it flow over you, really. And that, yeah. was, that was, in fact, exactly my experience of it, that I, I slowed down to its speed to the point that when it ended, I 
honestly thought we were about one hour in. And it's right. nearly a two-hour film. And that's never happened to me. I mean, I, I like hmm. slow cinema as, next, as, as much as the next person. But I, well, that's not at all. <laughs> I was assuming the next, the next person in this case was probably one of you guys. Okay, yeah. <laughs> at, at this table, that's a bit different. But yeah. Mm. Oh, mm. dear. But yeah, yeah. It, it, just, it, it rewired my, my awareness of the clock, which was just fascinating to experience and also really frustrating because it meant when it ended, I was expecting a whole other act. Mm. Right. I just ex- kept expecting it to end and it just kind of kept Keep going, going. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the, the, the story was quite thin I felt and, and yeah. there was no real I would say minimal dr- yeah. Dr- yeah, minimal would be a polite way to put it but um, yeah it, it felt well, rather uh, arbitrary what was included and what wasn't and what was referred to and um, and yeah, the, the cinematography is beautiful. The title shot and deliberate. The cinematography is so artfully constructed that I was mm. willing to accept the story, which, as you say, has its frustrating aspects. Um, was a series of careful choices rather mm. than someone yeah. just kind of, you know, plucking elements out of a historical thesaurus and dropping them in at random. Which you could probably make a case for that. You can follow what's happening. As Doug says, it you could you could see that as thin. But for me, the, the the richness of the film isn't in the narrative, which is you know just fine. I, I I I just love the 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 visual structure of it, um, and and the story carried through well enough for me to go, okay, yeah, this is girl, and mm. she's been trained, and now she's been put back in this awkward political situation, and. Uh, I, I think I when I wrote about it, I, I, it reminded me a little bit of Russian cinema, where there's a lot of um, socio-political stuff happening that I'm sure I'm not getting. Um, just because I don't understand a lot of the context, and yeah. a little reading probably would have filled some of that in, some of that in for me. Uh, but I, there was enough there for me to sort of go, okay, I can see what's happening here, and I know what's happening with her story and her arc. But it's just the way that it's put together is so beautiful, and the way that they that they use the camera, like you say, like it, it's built as a wushu film, and there's action pieces, but it's it's so kind of like there's this sporadic, violent bursts of action between incredibly kind of patient. And almost um, we haven't mentioned the draperies yet. The long shots, yeah, through yeah, draperies. Yeah. But yes. see, see, I, mean, I, I thought that... those were a kind of deliberate metaphor for the well, way the uh... film was asking you to view it. <laughs> <laughs> for me, that was a yeah. metaphor um, for the obfuscation of relational connection in that. Yes, yes, in, exactly. In the film, because you've got these shots of people through curtains that are wafting. And occasionally you'll get a clear shot when the wind pushes them in a certain direction, and then it'll drift away mm. again. And you kind of can see someone, yeah, wandering through the background um, who might be a bit dicey or whatever. And I assume they had someone working the fans or, or yeah, something probably. to control. I but, so. but I found it really easy to believe that yeah. that was actually random. That yeah. They just set curtains blowing yeah. in the breeze, and the occasional clear yeah, yeah. shot was actually arrived at just by chance. It, it reminded me a little bit of there was um, in Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, right in the start. There was a shot, one of the opening shots into the cafe um, through the window, yep. where you have this conversation going on, which you can see is kind of animated, but you can't hear any of it. But the camera lingers there, looking through at this thing, and there's a sense of there's a story going on. And I'm somewhat disconnected from it, but it, it then pulls it full circle as you slowly teases out the um, the individual stories of each character. There, but this one was a similar sense of using the the camera to disconnect you from some of the action, but sort of gave you space to kind of feel the the, the emotions and the various things going on with the people. So you've got this this assassin character who's wandering around. You can kind of see them, kind of can't. And the title would tell you that this is the important person and the important thing happening, but they they kind of the director distanced you as much from 
what they're doing is from the people that they're kind of stalking who are central to the actual scene going on in the dialogue. I just found that fascinating, the way that that was separating out these narrative elements um, and putting the sense of disconnection between them, but they're intimately connected in terms of the action that's happening. Yeah, I found that really... It, it got me excited. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's really well put. It, yeah. it took me it took me a while. I'm going to guess it took me longer than it probably took you. But I I I got engaged in a very similar way by a very similar process. I think. Well, it's interesting because I fell out of love with it. I mean, I, the opening title card, um, which has sort of this uh, reflection off a lake at sunset with these reds yeah. and stuff. And I, and I was no, like, no, it, the opening title card doesn't because it opens in black and white no it's the the title card happens after the black and white well, section yeah, oh does yeah, it yeah, okay. yeah. yeah there's a black and white section and then it cuts to color and i think there's a card that says a couple of years later or whatever right and it says the assassin has the writing in chinese yeah. script and has the assassin do you just parenthetically do you have a good theory for why it opened in black and white i scratched my head over that for a while and essentially gave up well, there's some. Up, the, I have better theory for that in terms of past present yeah. than I do for the shifting aspect ratios, which yeah. didn't make any sense to me. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I, I think it was the whole idea of past present. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I think it was just that that leap forward of like. It probably tells you something about the film that I find that. I mean, that that's a perfectly good explanation, and I find it overly simple. I, I want it to be something more profound. I want the film to be profound. Because I found it so profoundly beautiful and so much about it narratively I failed to understand. I want I want to feel that I'm reaching for something that's really worth the effort that I put into reaching for it. Yeah, I'm not sure you are. And that's and that's my my fear. And I, you know, it's one of those things that it's a very dangerous slope, you know, place to put yourself out on. It's like to say something has no clothes and then you go back and look and be like, Oh, actually there's a lot going on. Yeah. But no. I, I'm not convinced uh, you know, I mean, I this is, is sort of unrelated, but I watched Black Hat last weekend, the Michael Mann film, which yeah, had yeah. a lot of praise for its stylistic content. I've heard that film and, thoroughly trashed fairly widely. Uh, there, there's a group of people who are really enraptured with it yeah, as a piece of style. Of that um, and I just couldn't get past the boned, dead dumbness of the script. <laughs> and, and I feel like this script has different failings. But I feel like a film that was shot and put together like The Assassin that had a stronger sense of um, character drive and plot and stuff would be clearly such a better film to me. I don't, I, I, I don't feel like... like There are films that I feel like gain from that sparseness and, and those qualities that we've talked about and, um, and from that ambiguity of not knowing mm, these things. Yeah. And I'm not really clear that this one does and, and at the end when you find out whether or not the assassin has completed their task and why it's like it was I, it was almost a laugh out loud moment for me that was like we've just been hanging out 80 minutes for this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much but um, but I, I could totally be wrong and I'm really glad that I saw it on a huge screen because it's mm. gorgeous mm. Um, two questions um, would you go to it again? yes given a good screen? I'm not in a rush to. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I maybe a couple of years down the road, I'd be happy to revisit it and see um, what I felt about it. But I, I still feel like not convinced that there's a lot of there there, and there's a lot of things I'd rather catch up with first. And second question. Second question: What do you think of the decision to make it the center point? The center 
piece, the centerpiece, the center point, the centerpiece film. Because I, I know that did frustrate, predictably, I would say, a, a fairly high percentage of the audience. Uh, well, we'll talk about the opening film later as well. Um, and then the closing I, film. It's, I haven't seen the closing trio. film, so that's an interesting thing to talk about. Um, but Just, I... Um, it, it's really hard uh, in terms of there are going to be certain people that only buy these certain things. I don't actually know whether the Film Fest saw it before they programmed it as the centerpiece film mm. because it had just premiered at Cannes, and I, I just really don't know how... Would you do that? Um, I mean, it's... Uh, there's the, there was the support of the Taiwanese community. Auckland has a big Chinese community. Um, it has sort of a built-in kind of intuitive appeal it's like you know sumptuous martial arts epic on the civic yeah, screen yeah um and so art health, art and, I, and I, I think this year was light on um sort of you know films like boyhood come to mind i don't think there's any film like that this year that had this sort of marquee value there's no moonrise kingdom there's there weren't these films that um, there were no Jim Jarmusch films. There I were no Ex Machina comes close. Ex Machina probably comes closest, but the fact is, it's been leaked for six months, and I, I mean, I don't know how <laughs> yeah. popular. I mean, I saw it on the Air New Zealand flight that I took three weeks before the festival, so I don't think there was anything that had that um, X factor must see quality on it. Like, what would you have put in its place? Would be mm. my response. Possibly, um, 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 what was the closing night film? I want to call it Holding the Man. Man. Holding the Man, thank you. Um, that struck me as one of the most conventional, likable, easy films I saw at the entire festival. Also, rather downbeat, so that, but I mean, they made it the closing night film. Um, and relatively few people went to it, whereas, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it was quite a, quite a small house. Whereas the assassin was just packed, so in terms mm. of bringing in the crowd, it really worked. But in terms of the, that same crowd trusting them next year, I'm I'm interested as to whether it was um, as good a commercial choice as it was an artistic choice, shall we say? And I'm not the person to judge how much they should be worrying about that. I just I want the festival to be yeah. successful, and I know that it alienated a few people with that film. Um, well, th- this year had um, record sales, I think, in Auckland, is my understanding, or at least very high sales. Very good sales, I think. Um, yeah, and so and th- there were crowds. Um, there were there were crowds at a lot of screenings I went mm, to. Yeah, so it's um, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I don't ask the question critically. I'm just I'm I'm curious. The the business side of all this interests me, and I don't understand it terribly well. Well, I think it's always a bit of a gamble, and I think it's always. Um, uh, I think with that film, it's like. It, it was, um, I think it was sponsored by Taiwanese, Chinese. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. So there'll be, yeah, there'll be some sponsorship support, support. There'll be the fact, yeah, the fact that it's sort of got some notoriety and it's got a, a known art house director who's, you know, um, had some cachet and coming yeah. from Cannes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. in that sense, it makes sense as a centerpiece film. Yeah, um, I was I was really glad that they scheduled it then. It worked it worked out really yeah. well for me. It was kind of the crowning film of a of a really good day. Hmm. Um, now there's to move on to another film that Ooh. I know is a highlight for both of you, which I didn't get to see unfortunately, and I'm kicking myself about missing, which will be a recurring theme of the evening. <laughs> uh, Song of the Sea. Oh yes. Oh yes. gosh, I love that. Song film. of the Sea, fantastic. Mm. So what's so good about it? Well. I, has, you've seen Inside Out, haven't you? 
I have, and that's exactly the comparison that I wanted to make too. Yeah. Really? I haven't seen it, but I've oh. heard the comparison made a couple of times now. Um, yeah, well, it's not obvious, and that's part of what I love about Song of the Sea, because it's not a film that hits you over the head with its ideas. It's mm. just a film which tells a really good story with beautiful, beautiful animation, mm. and in a very in a very strong, distinctive style that isn't like anything I'd seen before. I haven't yeah. seen... You uh, haven't seen it, Secret of Kells? I haven't seen Secret of Kells. No, I'm... Yeah, one of, one of them, I haven't seen either. Don't worry. Uh, oh well, yeah. I, I really feel look like someone. Man, fantastic. Yeah, like I'm yeah. not an animation hound. Um, I kind I, of I am. See, I see a bit I of Ghibli. I see a little bit of you know Pixar and what have mm. you. Um, I see a lot more of Pixar nowadays with kids. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But um, I've made a point of putting this on my list because I really love Secret of Cows. Um, and the style is just markedly different from those yeah. other two. It's got that whole Celtic swirl pattern. The colour schemes are really kind of unique and rich. Um, is the appeal predominantly about the aesthetic? So is it is it just no, the, no, oh, no, it's a story. No, it's, it's no, a it's very a story. story. As well. It's a it's a classic story. I mean, you'd you'd recognise the story yeah. about. Oh, you wouldn't recognise all yeah. of its ins and outs, but you'd get a sense for what the story is going to be about five minutes in. Yeah. But if, you, if you're at all up on Celtic mythology, it's... In fact, you've um, have you seen The Secret of Ronanish? Mm, ages ago. Yeah, I, I saw remember, it whenever, yeah. whenever it released. So it's a Selkie story. Yeah. It's, it's about the Selkie myth. Um, and Selkie, for those people who don't know... Uh, uh, humans um, who are mostly female, I think, possibly males and male ones, um, who in the sea become seals, and then they go onto land, they shed their skin, which becomes a coat, um, and they become a person. Yeah. And there are stories across quite a number yeah. of cultures Often, that possess yeah. sea coasts of yeah. um, of fishermen yeah. who who find these beautiful women yeah. by the seashore and find a coat and hide the coat, the coat. and the woman stays with them and. Mm. But once the they find of, their coat, they go back to the sea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this yeah. is about the children of a, yeah. of a selkie who grow up not yeah. knowing their mother and not understanding why she left them. And it's, um, it's a beautiful, like the narrative is beautifully mirrored. So you've got this um, this mythic layer of the, the mythological creatures and and the, and the Celtic kind of traditional stories, um, mirrored to the story of a family um, where there's uh, some loss and bereavement um, and they're trying to deal with that and so the, the mythic characters mirror the characters of the father and the grandmother and and, and the kids kind of bridge this these two these two stories very nicely put yeah it's re- really beautiful beautifully told a, story a very nice sibling relationship yeah. story very non-mawkish yeah um, so I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Pixar in the main um, I wanted to like Inside Out quite a lot more than I did it's, it's a beautiful film all their films are beautiful um, but it struck me as didactic, moralistic, obvious. Um, I, I think Cars 2 is spectacularly beautiful. Okay. Like when, I, when, when I saw it, I, that was the one thing I took away from it. That man, that, that computer animation has reached new heights. This is, a, this is an astonishingly gorgeous, terrible, terrible, terrible film. Um, now, did you take your kids to... Yes, yes. And both how my, did they react? Both my kids, like, so I, I take my kids at least the last couple of years to um, festival films. Um, so I've got um, two girls just turned five and seven um, post-festival um, and so they've gone for the last couple of years mostly to um, the animation um, for kids so the the, the very short films um, are sort of quite close so this is the first feature at the festival I've taken them to they've been to a few features like Pixar features and what have you outside the festival um, and they both were in love with this um, I was originally going to take one of them to Marnie 
Um, but I decided that it was the younger one, actually. And I actually looked at the trailer and thought, ah, oh, actually, this is going to go totally over her head. And it might be too scary, yeah. but... It, what, she, we'll talk she, about that yeah. in a minute. Yeah, Good yeah, call. She, she's not going <laughs> to connect to it. Um, and they both loved it. Uh, completely engaged. Got the story. Um, I did. I wondered, actually, if it would work for kids in that age range. There were a couple sitting in front of me, and I asked them afterwards, and they were so enthusiastic. Yeah, they yeah. just they couldn't stop talking about it. And, I mean, two girls, but they got the, you know, the, the brother-sister sibling thing, um, and, you know, the sadness of the parents and, and all sorts of going on. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it worked really well for them, um, and so um, we'll, we'll get the... Blu-ray when it comes out because um, they're keen to see it again and they're very excited that well, Emily's very excited that she can tell her friends at school that she's seen a film that they haven't <laughs> and if we're lucky maybe they'll bring it back intent distributors yeah. <laughs> and to wrap up the point about Inside Out you don't realise this while you're seeing it until very close to the end but in fact um, the, the driving idea of Inside Out is exactly the idea um, that this film is playing with. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's about the importance of negative emotion and mm. allowing yourself to be sad. Mm. Um, and and they don't preach. They just they show you a character who is taking the other route, and they show you where it leads. And at no point does someone stand up and say, "It's very important that we understand that negative emotion. It, it's okay to be sad, children. <laughs> children, it's okay to be sad." Which I really felt like Inside Out was doing to. Her. Here's our sheet with the five stages of grief. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing that I'll just um, tack on to the end of that, another another highlight for me is, um, which may or may not be for many people, is that the soundtrack I loved, um, but it includes um, uh, several songs which were written and sung by Lisa Hannigan, who also voiced the mother, um, who's an Irish folk singer that I really love. Um, pop folk singer yeah she's fantastic and um, yeah so I've never heard of her does got a couple of really good albums Passenger was the last one I think does she um, record under her own voice Theresa Mann is the intro group? to the podcast uh, no, she, she's her own she's her own so um, Lisa Hannigan yeah, is Lisa the name Lisa her name um, she did if you've heard of a guy named Damien Rice who's another Irish kind of pop, yeah. pop folk singer yeah. she did sort of back vo- backing vocals for Damien Rice on his last couple of albums and then sort of broke out to do it but she's been a, like a, a live folk performer in Ireland for a long time yeah but she's Got a couple of solo albums now. They're okay. one of our faves, and the girls really love them as well. Well, also on the animation front, and I think um, perhaps not as well received by um, you, and certainly not by me, but uh, was uh, when Marnie was there. Ah, uh, yes. Ghibli. So, so I was very excited for the final Studio Ghibli film. Um, perhaps with rose-colored glasses, because you know there's definitely been some stumbles over the past few years. But The Wind Rises was possibly my favorite film of last year yeah uh and and so i was really looking forward to a valedictory sweep and i was actually prepared for something uh quite gentle and i know you and i have had disagreements on previous films putting it politely as to um films that are a bit maybe undercooked and quite gentle um and so i was i was quite surprised when i came to i was from up on poppy hill um was the one that came to mind when i was referring to that if you mean Oh, I, I loved that. Yeah, and I didn't. And you didn't, right. Yes, what, we, we what, did you, what did you think of Ariete? Because that was, I forget who directed I can't both even of remember them, if I've the seen it. the same director. I think I missed it at the festival and then haven't seen it. Right, okay. Um, but, it's one uh, of my least favorite of theirs, so my expectations yeah. were maybe a notch lower than yours. Yeah. I think I was more hearing less Studio Ghibli than from yeah, the director of... Yeah, um, But also, I haven't read the book, which um, I wasn't actually prepared for 
for what a dark film it's it really quite dark, was. isn't it? It's it's quite yeah, and it's I mean, you've got um, you know all these themes of like anxiety attacks and child neglect and all these things going on and it it, it um, that's probably quite the good parenting choice not to take four-year-olds <laughs> yeah yeah no literally literally the opening scene is this young girl having an anxiety attack oh, in uh, and, it's quite and then, yeah and it's mm. really uncomfortable like, you know something i was just like and then you get and then it's like, okay, um, and she's quite a misanthropic character for most of the film. She's too. pretty hard to like, and she, yeah, and she does some really nasty things to, particularly to, an overweight um, girl in the film. And, yeah, um, and everybody's quite forgiving to her, regardless. Um, I, but I just, I mean, there's there's always going to be a tactile delight in watching. People eat food. In I know, I know. Give you know? me food preparation scenes. They're just so magical. <laughs> yeah, and and just wind coming through a curtain, and 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 seeing those moments animated is, I guess, fan service. You know, yeah. um, something slightly more than fan service for because me. They, I mean, the aesthetic pleasure is is it's not just a callback to previous films. They're they're, they're genuinely beautiful animated images but I, I agree it it felt a little too loose um, I specifically disliked a number of things about the story there's a a kind of um, bitterness to the European source material which combined really oddly with some of the I want to say Japanese cuteness of oh with the, European of, of the, the relationship yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, not the first European children's book they've adapted by any means no they did um, um, uh, well, the, Tales of Essie a few years back and The Borrowers yeah. and um, obviously House Moving Castle thank you yeah. yes um, and non-standard adaptations but really really mm. good ones in, in, in that case at least um, but the way the two girls kind of bond struck me as the kind of thing you see more in Japanese children's films than American ones and there was something very kind of highly sugar sweet about it that I could have gone with but the bitterness of the girl's reactions to practically everybody else in her life <laughs> I mean and psychologically it kind of made sense she really needed someone to cling to but at the same time it just it felt odd like too much in both directions I wasn't really clear who the audience was for it I think that's maybe the um... yeah it wasn't an obvious kids film and it was a bit simplistic as an, as an adult anything drama yeah. comedy drama whatever yeah, it was a bit disappointing as a... Well, hopefully it won't be the last Ghibli, and that's all been a bit overhyped, but we'll see. Yeah, hopefully. Um, but if, if it was their last film, then it was a bit of a dying echo. But, I mean, I was I was glad I saw it, but I didn't feel that I could urge other people to rush out and see it unless they were Ghibli fans. Yeah, I definitely feel like I only saw it as... I, yeah, it's a completist sort of action rather than something like The Wind Rises. And um, yes. in, in terms of echoes to other things, there's also a lot of... Um, my neighbor to- Totoro, the first thing is the girls going to the countryside because there's yes. illness yes. in the family. Yes. Yeah. Ponyo came to mind. Um, yes, it, very there, much. There were, there were a lot Suicide. of tropes of um, Ghibli. Studio Ghibli yeah. films mm. that felt recurring, and it almost felt like you could cut it into a super edit of other yeah. films yeah. At, yeah. At, at times. A lot of those Ponyo echoes were there in Song of the Sea as well, actually. So it was interesting having seen, seeing both of them together. Um... On, I, I have a horrible feeling this is going to ping pong between 
films I was less enthusiastic about and films that you guys are more enthusiastic about. Oh, yeah. But um, <laughs> um, a, a Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Oh, the, the voice um, film. <laughs> the Vice sorry I, I, was sponsored by Vice magazine yeah. did they give you free ep- free issues no, no, did they no, no, have no. like people in the hipster glasses throwing up outside that they were taking bad Polaroids <laughs> <laughs> well, it has a little bit of that kind of it's a very cool film coming off it um, it's, yeah it rode that for me it rode that line the entire time of just being slightly too cool for itself um and for the first five minutes, I thought I was going to hate it. And I sat there thinking, oh, God, this is... I was really expecting to like this, and... And it's a James Dean pistol. And it's, and it's just trying so hard to be really cool, and it kind of knows it's cool, but it knows too well, and it's shoving it right in our face with the way that it's editing, the way that it's um, sort of all of the, the over... Like, it's black and white. It's, like, clearly black and white, but then there's, like... A layer of gloss to that black and white that is hard to miss. Um, and then five minutes in, I kind of struck a synth of rhythm with it. It reminded me of when I watched um, Damsels in Distress. I had the same thing watching that, and I was like, oh, these characters oh, just gosh. mouthing this dialogue that is pissing me off. I had that reaction so strongly to Damsels in Distress. But then I just clicked did into it. Did you get it. past it or no? I really didn't. You didn't. <laughs> I did. Five minutes in, I clicked into it. And same mm. with this. Five minutes in, I clicked into something in this. Um, it, to me, it just stayed... Well, no, it didn't stay on the right side of the line. It went back and forth over the line of too much, not, you know, and okay. Um, but on balance, it had enough um, strength of story and artistic merit to, to make it all worthwhile for me, yeah. Um, particularly the the structure of the film, um, which um, came through in the audio for me. There was, like, the... It went from, like, ridiculously upfront two cool um, underground music cuts. Um, so you've got a song playing full tilt and there's some sort of action going on with no dialogue and you're just basically listening to this person be cool to this cool song that you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> um, and it's like, oh, well, okay, that's cool. And then, But then it would drop into like extended periods of silence with some kind of interesting action going on, sometimes pushing the narrative forward, sometimes just kind of interesting, sometimes kind of cool action but with no cool sound like the you know skateboarding sequence for a while there um, and it would just have diegetic sound and it was fantastic and then it would drop into another set, uh, set of sound and it kind of it did it in a rhythm, rhythmic fashion where it would then drop into um, weird rumbling sounds so whether it be a train coming or the sound of the oil rigs in the background going or some kind of machinery going and so there'd be these whole periods where you'd get like cool song silence weird rumbling of some description <laughs> and it for me it just it, it gave this weird kind of undulating rhythm to the film that really really put it together for me and for a film that was way too cool in many respects it was so patient it just moved so slowly and smoothly I, yeah I came away loving it it was huh. one of my top films of the festival yeah. you had a much richer experience of it than I did I didn't have that repulsion reaction to begin with at all i i was mildly nonplussed mm. by the opening and slowly just sank into the rhythm of it right. and became intrigued and then quite fond i loved the visual style throughout i loved mm. it visually as, yeah. a, as a oh another 
nice black and white image. Oh, that's that's very well put together. I really like the framing. Um, so I was watching it on that level to begin with, and I was not initially quite taken by the story. Um, not to spoil the hell out of it, there isn't a lot to spoil. Um, mm. She's a vampire. It's somewhere in Iran. It's not actually. It was shot in the States. And yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And uh, California, I think. Somewhere? Yeah, she's based in LA. Um, she, her parents are Iranian, but they left the country when all the political stuff. So it's happened. Iranian language, but it's it's yeah. filmed in LA. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know. And that. I don't know how you would have shot it in I Iran. I think she grew There's, up in the UK. That's what I read. Um, don't know. Plausible. Um, I, it, it felt sufficiently Iranian to me, and I, mm, yeah. I go out of my way to see Iranian films. Um, it didn't it didn't feel non-Iranian. I mean, some people have found it a little bit too non-Iranian. Um, but, I mean, there, there's female nudity in it, for example, which I don't think you'd ever see in a film made in Iran, um, or at least I never have. Trying to think what I was saying. Um, she's a vampire. Wasn't as rich. She's a vampire. She is essentially going around finding men who annoy her enough for her to kill them. Um, and the first one she finds is this very unpleasant drug dealer. He's way over the top. Yeah. And his death is way over the top. It's kind of an exploitation flick yeah. moment. And it didn't do a lot for me. It was kind of, oh, really? Really? Did, did I need to see that? Okay, he's, could, could you just quietly kill him and move on? Um, but there's a scene a little way after that where she threatens a young boy. Yeah. And steals his skateboard. And... It's a really interestingly nuanced moment. After which, there's this image of her in her... Oh, what's the garment she wears? Hajib. Is it a hajib? A, I want to call it something else. Um, burka? It's not a burka, but it's one It's one of those... It's the Iranian traditional woman's... Or yeah, full kind of... Full um, coverage black robe. garment. So and she's on a skateboard wearing this thing, and she holds her arms out, and all of a sudden... It's the image of the vampire trailing a black a black cape. So yeah. one image has been transmuted into another one, yeah. and it manages to be both at the same time. And as an image of female empowerment, it's just magic. <laughs> and at that point, I thought, I'm absolutely on board with this now, and I never stopped being after that. I mostly it's just a really nice atmospheric vampire story, somewhat reminiscent of Let the Right One In, um, in a lot of ways. It's very um, forward on the gender politics, but, yeah, but in a yeah. very, very cool, interesting way. Like yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's not subtle, but it's not like a club. Like the way the way she puts, because um, clearly, like you've got this female vampire and she's preying on men, as you say. Um, but she's also kind of um, giving, kind of has weird interaction with the other women in their story. Yeah, and kind of going, you know, what are you doing? Um, it's it's really interesting. Very, it has a sense of thoughtfulness to it that, um, that at, on first glance, it, it would seem to lack. Yeah. And but Mary sees cool. things quite well, yeah. I, I find cool an interesting quality, and in mm. it's very hard to define. And <laughs> most people who try for it fail to achieve it, and this, mm. it felt very cool to me. Oh, there was another interesting um, post-screening um, little tidbit I found out, because I just thought, oh, this re- I was really interested... The, the vampire girl um, has, uh, she's got a little flat or whatever that she stays in in this room, and it's like plastered with like cool posters of old kind of 80s singers or whatever. Um, and there was this one poster, I was thinking, okay, I recognise, like, obviously this is the Michael Jackson sort of um, thriller or maybe, yeah, 
um, poster sort of thing is um, someone else that was recognisable, and then there was this blonde woman. I was thinking that looks kind of familiar, um, but I can't quite pick who it is. It kind of looks like Deborah Harry, but it's not. There's something vaguely Mandorish about it, but it's not. Um, so I, I, I specifically looked that up afterwards and found out that um, she had tried to get permission to use a Madonna poster, wasn't able to, like a, an iconic one. They didn't get permission. Um, but somehow when she was um, going through, I think it was mostly made and she was getting some, trying to get some backing to push it out, um, so Margaret Atwood was a she was a fan of Margaret Atwood the writer um, right. and so she somehow got into contact with her then Margaret Atwood heard about it and I don't know whether she had a look at it or whatever but she said yeah I'm into it and so the poster on the wall is Margaret Atwood posing as a Madonna poster <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Margaret Atwood present day yeah yeah wow um or maybe it was an old one. No, no, no. Yeah, you, you had a richer experience of it than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well spotted. <laughs> That's great. I'm, I, I just remember noticing that I love the visual design of her room. <laughs> so the next film, um, I alluded to it before, but uh, was your first uh, date with uh, Roy Anderson. Uh, we've just taken a little break and poured some uh, Garage Project Cherry Bomb here as part of our attempt to make Garage Project our official sponsors. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which I, I don't think Jacob will approve of because uh, he's not a beer drinker. But, no, no, no. Uh, this is but, the direction I've been wanting this podcast to go in. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, for me, this is my third Roy Anderson film after um, Songs from the Second Floor and You the Living. And um, the, uh, he had some older films before that and then took a break yeah. and did commercials for many years and then came back and started working in this new aesthetic of his. And this yeah. re- represents the third in a trilogy. Um so I'm coming at it with the history of those two films, whereas this was your first experience. So tell me what it's like to go in cold to a Roy Anderson film. Fantastic. Um, it wasn't stone cold. The reason I was going to it at all was that I'd picked up buzz from people like you who had essentially, without telling me anything, given me the general impression that it would be a criminal shame not to see this film. Um, so I had high expectations. And I had the odd experience, and not the only one I had at this festival, actually, of the short starting and me not realising it was the short. Right. So so, um, there was this entirely nice little film called, um, what was it? Something 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 like Walk on the Mild Side. It was about the Boring boring Man Society. Born to be Mild. Born to be Mild. That's what it was. That's quite entertaining. A series of nice little vignettes about men having, having fun with hobbies that they define as uninteresting traffic islands uh, photos of traffic islands interesting bricks yes (laughs) milk bottle collections Um, and I was sitting there thinking this seems tame but I like it it's it's (laughs) fine and then and then the film started and the the emotional temperature dropped to something (laughs) much much closer to absolute zero and um it completely blew my mind I just absolutely loved it while at the same time uh, it's a very strange experience being completely blown away by something which which is so utterly non-explosive <laughs> so it's it's a kind of it's a, it's a weird form of negative energy um, it's so dry and so deadpan that you risk starting to find things hilarious, which um, the film doesn't particularly want you to find hilarious by the end. 
um, and it goes to some quite dark places. Um, I think when I wrote about it, I was at fault not acknowledging that it was the first of his films I'd seen, because I do think, um, we talked about this, that it's a very different experience seeing your first one from seeing your third one, and I, so I, I had nothing to compare it to. Yeah. I couldn't tell people whether it was a good Roy Anderson film. I, could, I, I just discovered the sensibility that completely blew my mind. Um, it, it almost didn't matter what the film was in the aggregate because the individual pieces of it were so entertaining. Uh, the, the first musical number um, <laughs> just came out of nowhere and yes. completely knocked me sideways. Just so delicious, so beautiful. This, um, I'm not even going to try to describe it. Yeah. And in fact, describing a film was one of the hardest things afterwards. It was so much of the film consists of what it's not um, that accurately describing it. Um, I think I ended up doing one of those reviews where it's just, oh, I had a really good time. It was so funny. It was so strange. Go to this film. I don't want to spoil it, so I won't tell you much about it. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it, um, I saw it uh, at the Civic Screening. I think at the... Was it the first Sunday night? Yes, it was, because I'd flown up from Wellington that day. The first weekend, a friend of mine turned 50. I had to fly to Wellington. I... I flew back on the Sunday morning and going to a late night screening that same day was a big call, but it was the only civic screening there was going to be. So I thought I'd yeah. better and I felt really well rewarded for it. Yeah. I I had arrived I arrived in New Zealand from Los Angeles via Mexico, where I'd been for my brother's wedding. Oh, this, is this, such, this is such a one-up, Doug. I fly <laughs> from Wellington. You, <laughs> you were at opening night. Yeah, yeah. I had to be in Mexico. You know? <laughs> so, but you have to suffer sometimes. So you know, um, no. But I arrived this Saturday morning at like seven thirty on an overnight flight where I didn't sleep much. Watched the first two Arabian Nights. Watched Amy. Got quite not quite enough sleep. Uh, went to see when Marnie was there the next day. I think went to have dinner at my um, parent-in-law's or t- parent-in-law's to be's house, and then uh, sat down for a pigeon. Um, not eight thirty on the Sunday night. Want to see under those conditions? Yeah, and I uh, and I whatever caught up with me, and I actually had chills in the theater and stuff. So I'm I'm not going to put too much weight on my personal experience of it, but my feeling while watching it was that. Um, a lot of people think that Songs from the Second Floor, which is his first in that, is the strongest film. I actually prefer You the Living, okay. which I felt added more of a comic note and also built to a really powerful uh, emotional climax in a organic way. I've only watched Songs from the Second Floor once. I've watched You the Living three times now, okay. and it's worked for me every time. Um, and also builds in technical complexity in a way that is mind-boggling, um, whereas uh, a pigeon, with the key exception of a certain scene in a bar that you aren't expecting to have much of, uh, and that goes wildly out of control, uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't feel as much of a technical achievement as that, nor did it feel like a, um, a movement. Um, but I also mm-hmm. read some really interesting... Uh, I'm, and I'm talking in the context of his other works. No, no, I, 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 but, um, I get you. But I also read some interesting articles afterwards where he talked about, for instance, um, there's a human-powered musical instrument near the end, uh, shall we say. Yes. And the um, brand name on that is a very specific reference 
Uh, there's also this bar scene that I've talked about where the king that comes into that bar is actually a king that's held up as a cultural hero by skinheads in contemporary uh, Scandinavia. So um, there's a lot of critique that isn't necessarily mm, hitting. So that's it's an interesting question as a Western viewer is how you judge these things when you don't necessarily have all the intellectual ammunition to bring to bear to understand. Did, did you say you read that article before the film or after? After. Yeah. After. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, that, that image of the human-powered um, instrument is very similar to an image in one of his early short films as well, which is another reason that I found it repetitive. There's a film, I think it's... There's World of Glory and Something Happens, and I think it might be World of Glory, that starts with a... Um, Repetition of something that actually happened during the Holocaust, which is where they load a bunch of humans into the back of a car, a truck, and then drive it around with the exhaust pipe um, wired to go into that oh cargo my God, space. Does that actually happen? That that's a motif that Ian Banks uses in one of his novels. Yes, that's it, where he got it from. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, yeah, presumably. I mean, um, but yeah, that that was a Holocaust reference, and Roy Anderson did that. And so some of the. Um, scene that I'm referring to seemed to echo that as well. Yep. So, uh, but, but again, it is, there's, it's, it's hard to criticize somebody for making the third best type of a film that nobody's even trying to make. Yeah, yeah. I think there is also... I, I get you, though. I mean, yeah. there is the question. I, I, it's, it's hard to separate this out from your state. Someday I'd like to, I don't know, maybe over the course of three weekends watch all three of them with you just yeah. to see how I experience the three of them and how you find this one on a repeat um, because there certainly is the diminishing returns thing if someone's greatest strength is their unique sensibility mm. um, how many times can you experience it before it stops seeming unique because you've seen it multiple times yeah um, I, I'm interested whether I'll have that experience um, with with Guy Madden as well um, but that's that's another conversation uh, yeah Guy Madden I think works in a couple distinct registers so I think um, in terms of his level of clarity yeah. of storytelling and the autobiography he brings to bear there's a lot of richness in Guy Madden's work that I, I find his films quite um, for the most part distinct despite a lot of um, uh structural filmmaking similarities but having said all that as you will have inferred from my expression while you were while you were saying all of the above the experience that you didn't have of the film was almost exactly the experience that I did have that sense yeah. of, oh, of, yeah. of emotional continuity um, motifs kind of building on each other um, moving towards a climactic point the point where someone wakes from a dream referring to something that hadn't apparently been in their part of the film's continuity um, and to reasonably um, peripheral characters suddenly are situated at the exact centre of what's been going on. It just, it hit me quite hard. Yeah. Um, harder than I was expecting it to because I spent so much of it, so much of the early parts of the film I was just being mildly amused by. Um, so not knowing what to expect, I found it a very powerful experience. I would, I would, I'd like to road test that against his other films. I, yeah, I, th- I think I have no question that his stuff is worth revisiting, and uh, I'd like to revisit it in another state. Um, moving on to probably the opposite side of the accessibility <laughs> fence, um, one of the few films all three of us saw, although in my case, as I mentioned, not in the festival itself, uh, was uh, Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious what you guys think of it, and also the think about the fact that for most of New Zealand... Um, 
this is their only chance to see it mm. unless they've seen it in some illicit sort of way or as in my case on an Air New Zealand flight and that it's not actually seeming to get a proper theatrical release at this time. Uh, it's one of those things where you think surely this is a shoe in for theatrical release but I'm, my sensibility is so out the door from the average film goer that I don't really know what people will pay to go and see. Did you like it? Yes. Did you love it? No. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I liked it enough that I... That, and for reasons that I would think, surely this would be a shoo-in for, you know, a bunch of people to think, wow, fantastic, kind of, more freaky, interesting film. Yeah. Um, it's just... The kinds of films we see are uh, probably far outside the experience of the average film guard, this just seems kind of tame in terms of the way that it's exploring ideas as a film. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it was interesting. It was, it was, it was a, I mean, I love, um, I really like Oscar Isaac and I have done mm-hmm. since I first bumped into him in um, a relatively average film, the name of which I forget about Hypatia of Alexander that had Rachel Weisz in it. Agora. Did, Agora, that's right. Did you go to a most violent year? Um, yeah. We'll talk about that one later. Yeah, um, I'm just interested in comparing the two performances, though, because I did. He gave such a rich performance in that film, yeah. and he's he's playing a very two dimensional character yeah. in Ex Machina. He's, yeah. Well, I, I see. I think I mean, he's, he's very good. I think some of that is stripped out, but I, I think a lot oh, of that's Oh, it's writing. completely yeah. stripped out. I'm not blaming him at all. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I found. I mean, I I liked the film. But I, yeah, fine. Ex, Ex Machina. I I found. An interesting film that was perhaps not as well written as I would have liked. Ideas. I mean, there's a lot of um, a lot of films around AI and possibilities of late, and this wasn't the best of them. Um, what is the best of them? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I preferred not that it's a great, great film, but I pref- I definitely preferred um, her. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that her That's, is yeah. um, a borderline great film, and I I preferred it out of sight. And even though it's, it's not at all a serious film at all and it's not really looking at artificial intelligence at all um, but in a similar-ish vein I even preferred Lucy <laughs> oh, <laughs> for so its, did I for its over-the-top kind of Lucy was ridiculousness batshit crazy yeah, but yeah it, in the best it, way it, yeah. had, it had the courage of its conviction yeah um, whereas this this was kind of, had a little bit of a clinical feel yeah. Um, it really did, um, didn't it? Such such a yeah. sterile visual environment, and so the things that it excluded from the things its characters were allowed to know yeah. or think about just seemed not not exactly arbitrary, but very artificial. And the way that it played out in a very kind of fixed location with um, sort of minimal—it's quite a chamber act, piece, yeah. yeah stage play. It, it made me think a little bit of. Although it's about completely different things and it's done in a completely different way, it made me think a little bit of Barbarian Sound Studio, right? Which is a much better film, but on a very different topic. But that whole kind of locked-in piece where you've got people sort of reflecting back ideas back and forth between each other and paranoia and and, and what have you. I love that film, but I would have never thought to compare it to Ex Machina. But it, yeah. it just it just made me think of it. When it was, made me think of. Um, Genesis, uh, the, the Bernard Beckett novel. He's a New Zealand novelist who's written more more young adult fiction than anything else. Um, and it played with similar ideas in a similar kind of, this could be a stage play, mm. mostly dialogue-driven kind of way. Um, and I, I think uh, I'd much rather see a film with Genesis than 
than this. Mm. Um, I, I did enjoy it. Um, I found it kind of exasperating. Mm. But I read an awful lot of science fiction and I can never tell when I see something like this to what extent people who don't read much science fiction are going to come away going, oh my God, those ideas, I, my, my, my mind is expanding. But I, yeah. I think you were right. These are sufficiently kind of mainstreamy ideas now that merely presenting them is not enough. You mm. need to do interesting things with them dramatically. Yeah. And I mean, the dramatic arc of the film was... Very film noir predictable, didn't you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I... it's those character movements that aren't quite organic. I think mm, that, that's, that's nicely put. I yeah. think that's something that I had is difficulty. The, um, there's these these lacunas as well that mm. happen between things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's there's just a little bit of the the implicit power dynamics that you expect. I mean, the film throws you right in it. That's one mm. thing. Um, I was speaking to somebody else about is that most films you'd meet your guy and he'd be a regular schlub and he'd work in his job and he'd go home and there'd be a bo- box of packed noodles in the thing and he'd sit down and he'd yeah. wink one off oh, or he'd watch a movie yeah, and he'd have an opportunity yeah um, and yeah by the time all that happens he's already like won this contest and gone to this yeah. guy's thing and um, and all that setup is very elegantly dealt to yeah. and um, I really did love um, I, I mean I you know I don't read much science fiction I, I read a bit growing up and I haven't really kept up so I don't know how much it's addressed but ultimately for me the film is as much about its visual treatment as it is about the ideas that it contains and uh, not to um, contradict myself on the assassin too much but, uh, but I, I, I did love it as a piece of design that I felt complemented its ideas and I felt that the ideas were if not original at least enough to keep me churning a little bit and also I did not find the plot as entirely guessable as to what was going on which may just be my naivete but there were or, or the fact that I was on a flight and so anything would have been interesting yeah. to me with limited but oxygen. Could you expand on the idea that the visual design reflects on the ideas in play because I don't intuitively grasp that at all. Oh, I think I misspoke what I meant was um, that the ideas in play were also something that interested me. I guess I guess I would say that um, this sterility and this separation of the indoor outdoor from the specifically yeah. indoor and creating this space in this gorgeous outdoor space yep. is about uh, control and trying to harness what um, the messiness of what humanity is sure. into mm. something. Um, bordered and mechanical, yeah. and ultimately, the film argues that that that's an uncontrollable uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. Not not spoil it too deeply, but so yeah, not having intended to make that argument, that's how I make it. Um, that was very nicely yeah. done. Yeah, <laughs> I, and I, I would I would revisit it. I don't know if it would hold up on a second viewing, but oh, having watched it on a terrible screen, I would like to see it on a yeah. nice one. Yeah, it's, it's worth seeing. It's on a worth good seeing. But I would say that. It, to me, the film seems to think it's, as a narrative at least, I don't know about the idea so much, but certainly as a narrative, it seems to think it's a little more clever than it is. Like I think a lot more clever. Because it, it has this sense of, oh, hey, I'm twist, and you're like, but the twist is not really a twist. And There's this kind of very weird. fundamental thing, which science fiction cinema does so often, where 
you are being asked to admire the cleverness of the ideas, which requires you to appreciate them, which requires you to think, but at the same time, please do not think about plot plausibility or characterization, because if you apply the same level of analysis to those, the entire film will dissolve. And it just drives me bonkers. Very, very occasionally you get a film which is willing to be either equally clever or equally stupid on all levels simultaneously. And I don't, you get I, Lucy. I don't yeah, really yeah. mind which. Exactly, exactly. Lucy is good. Lucy, Lucy is fun. Um, I enjoyed Lucy quite a lot more than I enjoyed this. I'm being overly negative. I did actually enjoy watching Ex Machina and I'm gobsmacked that it didn't get a theatrical release here. It just seems like... Yeah, it just exact, seems odd. At the very least, I think you'd turn a modest profit. If The, the only way that... I can rationalise the decision as if your business model is we have to rake in mega bucks or else it's just not worth the advertising budget. And I, I didn't think we lived in that world quite. Maybe we do. Yeah, I, I think that the genre titles do have an uphill battle at the New Zealand yeah. box office. And um, Alicia Vikander was an unknown yeah, quantity. Um, Oscar Isaac is not really a huge... I mean, the, Oh, they're, they're both, they've both done such good stuff. I Oscar guess Isaac's getting a little more... The man from Uncle haven't come out yet. Uh, <laughs> Oscar Isaac and Donald Gleeson are getting a little more sort of a little more but there's no I mean but she's been in like three years ago and she was in um, oh um, 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 a royal affair she was really good in yeah but I don't think there's a, a huge I, know. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people who are like I really loved a royal affair let's go see X Machina <laughs> I think they're pretty distinct uh, demographics I know all the distributors out there are laughing at me but yeah. <laughs> for God's sake guys it's a science fiction film about pretty people and it's also a, a fairly well-constructed thriller, despite what I'm saying about its predictability. You could have made money off this film. What were you mm. thinking? Yeah, There's a poor quote for a poster. <laughs> <laughs> Mo- moving on to a film that I don't think we'll ever get a chance to see, which is gutting to me because I heard so many good things about it, was uh, Embrace of the Serpent. Oh, you yeah. didn't see it. No, I missed it entirely. Um, I'd, to this be honest, I, there were a couple of people who saw it at Cannes who um, were down on it, and when I was making my... Shortlist. It didn't quite. What were, cut the, it. What were their criticisms? Uh, I didn't investigate them specifically. Mm. They just thought it wasn't particularly a standout. What were their names? So I can strike them from my memory. <laughs> <laughs> this film was so much better than I was expecting. So what's yeah. good about it? Okay, so the kind of what I got in terms of the write-up on this was that. It's black it's, and white. It's about yeah, two it's cultures meeting each yeah, other, right? It's, it's yeah. kind of like a travelogue based off the true, the diaries of a couple of um, Western explorers in South America, um, down the Amazon, Colombia, I think Colombia Amazon. Yeah. So I was thinking, okay, this is going to look lovely, and there's going to be some stuff that may be slightly historical. Lovely, correct. That's what I was thinking, but actually, it's a really good tale. Like. What it, what it does is it takes there's two separate um, travel accounts that it pulls from of Western explorers who are like thirty or forty years apart. Someone sort of towards the turn of the twentieth um, century, and someone more towards the sort of thirties forties end yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, and they have a single character kind of bridges those two narratives. Now I think in, was that the case historically? I think so. Oh really? Yes, I think that they both did actually encounter the same tribal person so it's a, it's a split time screen yeah, narrative yeah. you get the you're, you're yeah, seeing the same character in yeah. youth and in age and that's a, a, a an, an indigenous um, tribes person from 
uh, a kind of a dying, what's seen as, as, as a dying tribe. When we first meet him, yeah. he thinks he's the he, last he's of the last his man, tribe. But it turns um, out that he's not. He's a um, shaman. And one of the Europeans has been sent to him because yeah. he's dying of something, and the shaman is supposedly the only man who can save his life. Yeah, yeah. So it's and a fairly standard narrative hook. Yeah. But what, what happens is that you get, from this kind of point of view of a, of a Western-driven film, um, you've got uh, the person who's, the people who are making the film uh, very much from the native indigenous side of things, and basically they, they turn the narrative around and t- put, it, put the key point of view from the um, indigenous tribesmen bridging these two stories. Um, and so you've got these facts, I guess, or, or accounts from these Western travel travelogues, um, for want of a better term, or histories, um, being filtered through the point of view of an indigenous character. That makes it sound even slightly less radical than it is, I think. Oh, because it's I mean, fantastic. I, because it's, I, I experienced it coming, speaking of science fiction, I experienced it as a first contact science fiction story yeah. told from the oh, point yeah, of view yeah. of the That's alien race. Yeah. And there, there's a tradition in science fiction of oh, anthropological yeah. SF um, yeah. where quite often you see two conflicting systems of knowledge, two epistemological theories clashing, basically. So essentially, what you've got is Western science um, Mm. meeting the knowledge base of this native shaman. And the film doesn't privilege either of them, really. Um, You're flipping back and forth from these two points of view and essentially being told, these things are true for this man, Mm. these other things are true for this man they live in different worlds they're trying to interact let's see if it works and it's just really really interesting I, you don't very often see a film do that um, and I mean that the shaman is kind of given a leg up in a sense by the fact that the story starts with the supposition that he's the only one who can cure this illness that the westerner has caught yeah. um, but at the same time western science in, in the form of um, military technology is in the process of wiping out his people um, so it's a very interesting clash of cultures, and it, it just makes for a really tense back and forth. And so it's this insanely beautiful black and white sort of photography mm. um, of this completely in the middle of nowhere place, um, but with this story that is so much better than I expected. Like, it, and, it, and it's not just like a couple of historical accounts. It's this great like yarn of this guy who's sort of lost himself, and he's then thinks he's found a way to. To redeem who he is and all and and his entire culture um, via these other kind of alien creatures that have come to meet with him, oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are, oh, there are, there is, there's a particular image of it and of a burning tree, which is yeah. completely starkly beautiful. But it also, by the time you reach it, packs the most astonishing emotional punch. Mm. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about it is that there's no way to explain. Um, you you would have to watch the film to see why the image is so powerful, which I take it as one of the things that film should be trying to do, create images that only make sense within their own context. It would definitely be in my top five, I think, of the ones that I've seen. Right, wow. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, it was a really strong film, and I, I think I talked to someone who'd seen top it, ten. and... Definitely. Oh, yeah, Dylan Horrocks had gone to it and found it less than impressive which was really, really useful. Thank you, Dylan, if you listen to this, because it lowered my expectations, because I, I have a lot of time for Dylan's opinions. And in this case, the fact that I disagreed with him so completely um, was, was perfect. Um, I went in expecting very little, but I already had the ticket, and I came out on a complete high. Now, uh, to switch gears entirely to a film that all three of us saw, 
Um, now, I know, know that all three of us were a bit light on um, new New Zealand films, and I know there's yeah. quite a few... Um, Ever the Land and um, Belief the Possession of Janet Moses in particular. People tell have, me such good things about that. have got quite a um, rep coming out of this festival, and um, I'm, I'm a bit, um, I always struggle a bit because you're contrasting this largely unknown quantity that's never played anywhere to the latest hot thing out of Cannes or your new yeah. film by a favorite director, and it's hard to privilege those. Um, but I think, but all three of us made an exception for. Uh, out of the Mist, an alternative history of New Zealand cinema. Mm. Um, Jacob and I, of course, both write for Lumiere, and so have a relationship with the director, Tim Wong, mm. as a result of that. Um, David, you're unencumbered of any <laughs> such uh, thing. But um, I, I felt quite legitimately, uh, independently of that connection, the fact that I'd read an essay of it before, um, quite excited by the film uh, and the reason I felt that way was not what I expected um, because you know a lot of the hype around the film was that it's going to give you a checklist of new New Zealand films that you've never heard of that you want to go see which it did do which it does do and in fact if you go to Lumiere's site they, where they have the trailer for it they now have a link to about 10 or 11 of them that are online which you can go watch many of those films that is um, very useful yeah it's um it's very worth doing. Although, um, note that anything that's for New Zealand on screen will be for um, accessible and by New Zealanders only, I think. Oh, is that true? Because yeah. um, I, well, I don't know how many non-New Zealanders listen to us. Yeah. But, um, you I'm know, just really chuffed that there are things that only New Zealanders can see. That this is But in particular, Lost in the Garden of the World, which is a film made in 1975 mm. where a couple of New Zealanders went to camp Can, to yeah. interview people and oh. Um, which the, some elements are incredible. Part two, they which is one of my, Time as a Spider. I don't know if that's Time as a Spider is not available uh, online. Damn. But um, uh, Part two, which is I think one oh, of the yeah, best films yeah. this country's ever produced. Uh, the Maintenance of Silence, which was the film about um, Neil Roberts' bombing of the Wanganui supercomputer. Was uh, it any of Alison McLean ones? Um, Alice, uh, Rud, Rudd's Wife, which is that um, domestic drama. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that's available. Um, online and I mean uh, he, um, he focused specifically on um, is it it's Crush right yeah Crush yeah, yeah and yeah. which um, in his after uh, speech he said was probably his favorite New Zealand film if he had to be narrowed down to yeah. one but so that's in itself very valuable mm. yeah so but apart from that resource um, what he I think what he's putting forth in the film is a politic of what film can or should do in terms of engagement hmm. with a sense of place and a sense of um, a traditional grammar about uh, how fil a film portrays a place. And hmm. so New Zealand has a very specific set of images that colonize our imaginations yeah. from Lord of the Rings to Whale Rider um, to the Man Alone films of, of what it means yeah, yeah. to be a New Zealand film mm. um, that really only represent a fraction of what's actually made here. Yeah. There and and um, and there are so many films that aren't mentioned in the, in the film because I think he largely chose to focus on more positive examples that will literally you know use scenics as wallpaper to get from mm. point A to point B and just buy them wholesale off off Tony Monk or one of these 
people that go shoot things for advertisements and then <laughs> you can go buy them. I mean, this is not a joke. This is how it... I mean, it is a joke in a way. Um, and, and as a filmmaker, I felt really um, challenged and excited and inspired by it to, you know, if, to, if I make another dramatic film, to try harder to integrate that sense of place because I do think that that specificity and having a political relationship to what you're choosing mm-hmm. to portray and why is really important. And it's interesting, I've talked to a lot of people and, and we well, we can get into this, that like, oh, I don't agree with the, some of the things the film says. And I felt like a lot of what the film was about was not about making statements, but there are a lot of no, questions. I... And it's about, for me, it was about circumscribing a space for a dialogue that hasn't existed in the New Zealand culture. And I think I, I think those arguments could be applied to lots of other film cultures as well. Yeah. I think somebody in Japan who's watching this could think about, oh, well, how do we portray landscape or whatever? Yeah. But it is specifically about New Zealand. But that's my take on it. What are your guys' thoughts? Well, I, I think um, that Tim and the film doesn't don't really kind of stand hard on this is what... New Zealand film is actually about or should be about, it really just does raise a bunch of questions. It's not didactic at all. It's, it's saying, okay, at the moment, there's this pervasive international view of New Zealand as Middle Earth, which has really nothing to do with our place and culture, but it's just a, a result of some very popular films, which, you know, aren't that bad in themselves, but they're very limiting in terms of have you the seen way the Hobbit we, films? You know, the way that we view view our academy. And yeah. they happen to dovetail yeah. with our whole tourism. Yeah, yeah, tourism. So, and, so and like therefore the national, they end up the gaining national, a lot of traction. Um, carrier, the government, you know, mm. in yeah. various ways have yeah. Yeah. endorsed these views of the country and sort of saying that actually our country is about more and our national cinema <laughs> is definitely about more than this. Um, I, was, I was really interested to see it. Not, I mean, obviously there's interest because I know Tim, but there was interest because um, one of the films that he refers to as a kind of a, a jumping off point and, and that he referred to in the Q&A um, is a film that I'm really interested in that I've seen a few times, Cinema of Unease, which Sam Neill um, yeah. narrated. I'm, I'm not sure if he how involved he was in other senses. I think it was like from 95, um, yeah. which took a look of um, at the kind of pervading sense of New Zealand as this New Zealand film is kind of dark. I, I think of Sam Neill as the driving mind behind that film. Mm, um, is, yeah. Is, is that not the case? I, well, I, I don't know. Um, I suspect that it, it might be, but because um, he, he has sort of, it is a lot about his personal experience. <laughs> That's how David Thompson describes yeah. it in his um, yeah. um, biographical dictionary yeah. of film. That's my whole source for that, so I, I could be wrong. But I, I really, was really interested in the way that... It he, was written and directed by oh, Sam okay. Neill. So I was really interested yeah. in the way that he kind of dug out that whole sort of sense of which, which I recognise, um, the, the darkness of the image of New Zealand films from a certain time, um, and the whole idea of another film exploring that again, um, now with newer references and some older references to kind of expand our picture of what is New Zealand cinema? How do we represent ourselves? I mean, I find that fascinating. Um, and I think it does a really good job, and it is very much as, an, as a kind of an essay film, um, rather than kind of like a typical narrative film where, where it just sort of exposes you to a whole lot of different images and ways of representation, you know, representing us as a people on screen. And, and I, yeah, I found that fascinating. There was a bunch of stuff that I'd seen and that I was interested in and a bunch of stuff that I'd never heard of that I just think, wow, that's 
fascinating and I'd love to see a bit more of that that um, expresses a little more of New Zealand but one of the one of the key things that, that stuck out to me in that um, in the film was um, when early on they make a, um, a point of when they're talking about film uh, uh, contrasting New Zealand artists, um, so p- the painting sort of thing, yes, where they, where they talk about Colin McCann and yeah. the pictorial history, and then the, I, I don't remember the name of the artists that they refer to, but artists that look at the same landscape, but they include the the, um, the impact oh, of people on that yeah, landscape. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and so I, I you've got the, the McCanns and the other people who mm. show the wide open land, and and, yeah. and it might not be a, like a typical kind of picturesque kind of view, but but. Other these other artists and there was a particular female artist and the name I don't remember and I feel but it's not Rita Angus is it no no, no it wasn't Rita Angus someone else um, who had that same pic, uh, that sense of a kind of an abstract pictorial but that also had the impact of people so had factories and various other things um, that are often ignored in the New Zealand view of this kind of place of wide open spaces and yeah. there's no one to be seen for hours on end except that actually for most of the country that's not true. There are people to be seen, and we're perhaps not as um, concentrated as some other places of the world, but it's not like there's no one there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so I came out of it agreeing with pretty much everything you've just said, Jacob. I then had a conversation with you, Doug, where you made the argument and it, that, that you've just made, and I, I found it immediately persuasive. Um, so I endorse all of that. The reason that I hadn't picked up on any of the things that Doug pointed out, um, apart from lack of fundamental mental acuity, um, was I think that the film presents its arguments more densely than I wanted it to. I, and I'm, I'm fairly convinced that's an error. Um, I think Tim had so much to say um, and had put so much into thinking about this that he made... Um, what's a fairly basic mistake and tried to say all of it or at least tried to say more of it than the film could comfortably contain. Mm. So my experience of watching it was a mix of absorbing interesting arguments, learning about very interesting films and having new arguments pile onto the previous ones so fast that after a while I stopped trying to write them down and threw up my hands and said Tim, too much (laughs) Um, so that's the right kind of problem to have if you're going to have a problem Um, and um, I think I said in my review it it points towards seeing it multiple times rather than not seeing it at all but on the whole um, I found it a mix of frustration and I I was impressed by it I was also frustrated by it I think that's. I, I, I mean, you mentioned the essay film before, mm. and 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 it is interesting to move from somebody like Tim, who's established himself as one of the leading essayists on New Zealand film, yeah. into a visual medium because your relationship to a written essay mm. is one that is self-paced. Whereas if you find a bit of it that's thornier or challenging to you, you can stop and you can revisit and you can. Do that, whereas cinema is relentlessly linear, yeah. and so you have no. Uh, it really changes the power dynamic between the author and the receiver in yeah. in the written form, the reader, and in film, the viewer, mm. and uh, and I certainly do think that there were things that flew by me. That's like, you know, I could have definitely spent more time digging into that, but I think 
also it's one of those things that everybody is bringing in a unique set of pre-knowledge and uh, pre-understanding and pre-interest to bear. Mm-hmm. And so those will be very distinct from viewer to viewer. Yeah. So it's quite difficult to calibrate what what's appropriate. At what point are you dumbing it down and scaffolding it and over-explaining it to a point that your viewer who... Can ex- can give you a five minute yep. discussion of cinema yep. Yep. Knees before walking into the theater is going to be I'm, just bored to tears. I'm very prepared to put my hand up and say it's very ironic um, that I should be saying that a piece of New Zealand um, f- film journalism um, should be too intelligent and present too much information <laughs> because that is not my usual complaint. Yeah. So yeah, so fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, no, but but I I do think it's um, I th- I think it's an interesting question, and I don't necessarily think that it's entirely um, successful at all times at at pacing its arguments mm. um, in a way that's most that. And I know I mean a bit about the production process was that the voiceover was recorded before the film was complete, and I feel at times like the relationship between the voiceover and some of the clips yeah. don't always have the natural. Um, ebb and flow that might have happened if it had happened the other way around. Yeah. Uh, really liked the voiceover yeah. though. Getting it on the cat to do it was a good idea. Yeah. I thought. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I've, I, I know somebody else who <laughs> disagrees. Uh, who, who, who would have liked to? Anyway, we'll move on. From <laughs> uh, let's talk about Clotzus Souls Maria because this is oh, another that. film that I really regret missing. Oh, dude. Um, and Olivia Sayas. It's got. It's got to come back. Um, that's got to come back. Not surely. necessarily. No. Oh, oh dude. So. I, no, I can't see it necessarily. Oh come on. Well, no. Well, actually, it could do the Rialto run. It, it's. It, it's actually likely. It, it was scheduled it's not, for New Zealand release. It's not on the release schedule at this point. It really. was. It was taken off. Oh um, yeah. It was scheduled for March. So my cat was too. And mm-hmm. my my assumption is that it got such a great reception at the festival because I saw that so many people back. raving yeah. about it. Um, that they will reschedule, but was, maybe, was I, maybe, maybe I'm just being willfully optimistic. Um, I think so. Um, I'm just going to turn to my son, who is quietly listening to us taping this, and say, "Raf, were there lots of people at Clouds of Sills, Maria? Do you remember?" Yes, I'm sure there were. Okay. Yeah, we, we have we have multiple Independent sources. Car um, yeah. <laughs> Let me say first, thank you, David, for uh, endorsing this film um, and telling me to. Sneak out of work for the morning <laughs> to um, to get to it. I would always uh, tell you to do that. Yeah, and spin. actually to Hugh Lilly as well, um, <coughs> who also um, put his thumb firmly up and said, "Yeah, it's well worth getting to." Um, it was one of the late additions to the festival run in Auckland, um, to the point where I saw it on the Wednesday following the what I would think of as the end of the festival. So like the the closing night film on Sunday, it was the Wednesday after, um, and I saw a daytime screening of it at the Academy. Thank you, Academy. Um, and it was one of those ones that, in the run-up to the festival, I thought, oh, yeah, this sounds like it could be all right. You know, um, it's Olivia Sayers, it's, um, oh, it's Kristen Stewart, it's Juliet Binoche. Um, Actually, you know what? That's my answer to what should have been the centrepiece. If you weren't going to have the assessment, true. I would have yes. gone with this. But yes. anyway, go on. Um, and, and I was... It just it didn't make the cut for me on a on a very slim down schedule, um, and, and then afterwards 
I was just looking to listening to the um the chatter online and heard people going on about how Sils Maria was just fantastic and everyone I heard talk about it oh this film is so much better than I thought it was going to be this film was fantastic this film was really interesting to the point and then the academy, uh, the festival sent out their extra screenings and then I looked through and I thought oh there's nothing here that I really want to see oh this one and so I sent out online and said oh is this really worth seeing and David and Hugh came back to me and said you need to see this yeah, it's worth sort of taking time out. This is probably, I would say, the best film I saw at festival. Wow, that's a, that's a big call. But it's on my top five. It's not the you didn't see Jacob Burgundy, but anyway, it's not my favorite film that I saw because there are some other films that appeal to me in a different way that are that appeal to my sensibility. Yeah, that's um, an interesting distinction. This, this was the film that I came away from thinking. That is a mainstream festival hit. Yeah. That is what a mainstream yeah. festival hit looks like. Yeah. I, I loved it. It's yeah. got, but that, that is the film that I would tell almost anyone to go to, mm. whereas yeah. the other films that I loved, much, much smaller audience pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Cl- Clouds was... It was one of those films... That, I mean, and there are a few like it where you have like a very... It's a very meta-narrative where you've got a story that's um, kind of said to be happening um, about, so you've got this character of Julie Binoche who's um, a famous famous actress, um, sort of getting past the prime of her career um, and she's been asked to do a film by an up-and-coming director um, play. A play. play, sorry, yeah, by an up-and-coming director which is the same play that she had her breakout role in but she's been, it's a play that has a young woman role and an older woman role and intimately connected and, and sort of main characters. And she's been asked to take the, the older woman role where she, her breakout role was the younger woman role. Um, and so they have this whole meta-narrative where Kristen Stewart in the film plays Juliette Binoche's um, personal assistant and, and they have this whole kind of mirroring of the play that she's been asked to do with the actual action of what's happening with her and Kristen Stewart. With um, a secondary echo yeah. of the relationship between her, her and, and Chloe Grace Moretz, yes, who yeah, plays the, the, the starlet who's taking on the, on the younger role. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. It's, it, yeah it's, it's very layered meta-narrative around similar ideas. So in some ways it could seem as... Schematic. Just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's saying that it, it sounds like it's, it's almost trying to be a little bit clever, but actually it works really well, and the performances right. are so good. So good. Kristen Stewart is just she to my mind she basically goes toe to toe with Juliet Binoche and this is Juliet Binoche at and the top Ju- of yeah the and Juliet Binoche and like top shuffle four. up yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I mean the film looks great it, it's um but but the it's written so well written the dialogue is fantastic and and the layering of 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 this sort of meta narrative and, and metaphor is so good yeah have you seen Irma that by the way What's that? Irma Vep. It's an earlier SAS film. No, 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 I haven't. I was, I was no. actually, I was looking down his credits, thinking, why have I seen so? F- In fact, have I seen any of these films? Because I, I mean, I came away from this thinking I need to watch everything that you have ever made. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Well, Summer Hours is terrific, um, and I recommend that. I saw Irma Vep many ages ago, and it didn't connect with me at all. But it was about 
yeah. at, at filmmaking well, and uh, making a remake of oh, yeah. the uh, yeah. Fu- Fuliad oh, oh, okay. uh, film. And, 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 and it's one of his. Uh, yes, it is. Yes. Because it's I could have had his from 96. There were numerous points in this film and, where yeah. I thought to myself, this could so easily have missed me. This, yeah. It would be so yeah. easy for this to have ended up either being a soap opera at the one extreme yeah. or um, a, a diagram made flesh at the other, and it manages to balance yeah. it perfectly. And I yeah. can well believe that someone someone capable of making this film would start his career making a kind of a, a flawed version yeah. of this film. Look, Irma Vep actually showed up on a lot of top ten in the 90s. Yeah. It wasn't huh. a film that connected with me personally, but I didn't... Well, it's always possible I, this I, could I, be the same. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you and I have occasionally had strong kind of opposite polarity yeah. responses. To I, don't, I don't know. I, 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 I think, everything I think, I've heard about it... I think you would appreciate that, this. And also, yeah. I, don't tr- I saw it in 97 or something, and I don't necessarily... Trust, I think I probably trust yeah. you more than Doug Dolan in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> and that's... Uh... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Dillerman, 97, and David Larson, 97, could have had some really bad conversations. <laughs> Interesting. It, it put me in mind when I was watching it a little bit of, um, like, in terms of the basic sort of meta-narrative and structural stuff of um, of Map to the Stars. Which I didn't see. Which I loathed, but go on. Which I actually oh. well, I liked, but this was so much better. But just in that whole idea of um, people playing roles that they had played earlier and messing around with that kind of thing. But this was a whole lot less... It was less overtly cynical, and, and but it was yeah. cynical. Both of those, but much richer, um, much yeah. more interesting, oh, much yeah. more going on, and I would, I would say much cleverer. Yeah, um, you, I, it was so I well so written, and the performance... Like, the, like, the writing and the performances, for once... Well, well maybe not for once, but... They don't often sort of match up with the quality of the writing and versus performances. Usually, I yeah. often find that one or other is better, is better and carries the thing. But in this case, they fit really well. You know how you were saying those opening moments of Ex Machina don't really convey a lot of information very cleanly. Yeah. Um, the opening moments of this do the same thing, but in a far less technically showy way. It's yeah. just Kristen Stewart talking on the phone, but mm. um, the way it's shot, the way it's framed. Um, the way it's written and my god the way it's acted you, yeah. you, I could just feel myself sitting up and thinking hey quality this is mm-hmm. this is good like everything about this is clever the person filming this is intelligent the person who wrote this is intelligent that is really good acting um, and they're well please, directed please let it yeah. stay this good and then it got better yeah <laughs> go go watch uh, Summer Hours and uh, Something in the Air or After May I forget which it was released under different titles in different countries, but it was um, played at World Cinema Showcase after May. A couple of years ago, it might have played under After May. Yeah, but um, I'm there. Yeah, those are those are two great Asayas films, and I haven't seen Carlos yet. Carlos is actually pretty um, good. It's yeah. not as good. As, it's nowhere near as good as this. But yeah, but I was aware of Carlos it's, and never. It's never pretty fantastic. It. Like yeah. I, I watched the. It's been released in two or three forms. It's been released in a shorter form, and oh, a, no, no, a longer form, and then... And played the, the festival, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then yeah. in the full kind of um, miniseries form. I think I only saw the first one, and I wasn't actually blown away by it. No, oh, okay. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a good, interesting, like, if you know... Doesn't it reach its peak health. in the centre? Yeah. That's what I've heard about yeah. it, is that yeah, there's a sort of heist yeah. in the centre that's yeah. the uh, hour of, like, yeah. greatest intensity. But the, this mm. is so much better, yeah. Let's talk about results um, and not 
the results of this podcast. <laughs> um, but like, um, you 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 may be New Zealand's number one Andrew Bujowski yeah, fan, yeah. <laughs> um, and we're coming we're coming off the back of Computer Chess, yeah. which was um, oh, it was so uh, good. such a singular. Uh, amazing film. Were you a computer chess fan, David? I saw computer chess almost entirely because of Jacob, possibly also because of you. Um, you one or both of you told me it's a Bajowski film, you yeah. have to see it. And I possibly then you went to it and told me, no, no, you really, really have to see it. And yeah. so um, my sons and I all went to it and I think we were equally blown away by how yeah. How much stranger it is, even than it initially seems to be. Yeah. It's such a funny, strange, good film. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and that was why I went to Results. As soon as I saw it was Bajowski, I yeah. thought, okay, I have to go to it. And I have to admit, um, as my second Bajowski film, it felt like a fairly large step down while still being entirely enjoyable. I did, oh, yeah. I liked it a lot, and I could see the line from it to computer mm. chess it does a very similar thing of going into a very specific subculture finding the language yeah. of it and speaking that language but then twisting it to say things yeah. that it's just not made for in this case the language of self-improvement gym yeah. culture um, and, I, and I liked it I liked the characters I enjoyed spending time with them I'm probably sounding slightly less pleased by it than I was in the moment of watching it because yeah. actually I really enjoyed it and I came away thinking that was nice but I came away from computer chess thinking that was amazing. Yeah. Um, but still, I enjoyed it. How did How did you find it? I would respond and say yes. I, it's not computer chess, um, and I if I had to rank Bujowski, computer chess would be above that for sure. But having watched a range of his films, um, like I've watched all of them, but I, I started in cinema with the second one, um, Mutual Appreciation, and gone. Oh my god, this is I relate to this so much, um, and then sort of gone through the iterations of, of filmmaking that he's done. Um, computer chess is the most out there thing that he's done, but at the same time, um, he he doesn't he's not a mainstream. Let's make a great sort of broad um, star started thing, and so this is the most mainstream that he's got. Yeah, so it, it, it so, felt releasable. So I, I actually really enjoyed that because I like romantic comedies, and this reminded me that I really actually do like romantic comedies <laughs> because I've seen so many of late that I've really hated because just, <laughs> they rely on awful gender stereotypes, they rely on tropes that are just god awful. Whereas you know the ones that I've really loved, they might have sort of traded on those a bit, but they've actually had a bit of originality to them. To me, results, you know where it's going, it gets to where you expect it to get to, but the journey in between is so original and so well scripted, and, and it's got the two things that romantic comedy should have. One, it's funny. It's really funny. There are it so is. many really funny bits, and it's warm and funny. And two, there is actually chemistry between the leads. You kind of think, like, there's, there's kind of this love triangle-ish sort of thing going on, and this chemistry between weird chemistry but actually good chemistry between those three characters so Guy Pearce who I, I really love and I've, I've always really liked him even if I don't like yeah. his films he's really nice he's, he's really, this, I mean. his character in this is, is probably the straightest and he's really good um, Colby Smold, Kobe Smolders who I don't really know I've seen her in was she yeah, Avengers? Avengers yeah um, that's where I know her from oh my god she's Agent Hill yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I mean she I, I, oh, don't, I don't know much wow. about her she was actually really nicely played like written in this and she played it well but Kevin Corrigan who's been in all sorts of things 
Grainer from Freaks and Geeks. He, he often has a slightly dicey character. His character was really interesting kind of duality of kind of this creepy, odd guy to a actually kind of really nice who who was who in the end kind of wrapped up the story and made it work for the two protagon two other protagonists. Um, he was and yet the highlight for me to leave it on really quite a creepy note. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a highlight for me. He was fantastic. He was beautifully great. written, really well acted. Yeah. Um, so the result for me was just super funny, great chemistry, and it was Bujowski. And bear in mind, I interviewed him for um, for Computer Tears um, for Lumiere, um, and the kind of vibe I got from him was that he. Because he's a, he's a small filmmaker and he is um, and computer chess works so much better than he expected it to that he's suddenly got kind of more cachet and a little more maybe um, pull than he would have expected prior to that um, was able to get some some sort of slightly more high profile actors decided to do what you'd think is a mainstream film but sow his own um, sensibility into it and I think he did that in such a good way he he took his um, smart writing um and and really interesting filmmaking into a quite a broad genre film and made it work yep okay i can i find that a completely convincing account yeah yep um what jacob said (laughs) and 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 i kind of think that i'm so used to watching film festival films and i generally go for the darker more grim films and i have to say this year has been one of the less grim years i've had um, and and I prefer things that are more challenging, a bit weird, maybe a little creepy, um, sometimes a bit violent. But you know, I, I I prefer getting into some stuff which is a little, even documentary life, which is a little bit kind of. And this was a real highlight for me. It was so much fun. I came out. Melissa and I went and see it, and we we just enjoyed it. It was great watching intelligently scripted and beautifully acted. Not to derail this already quite long conversation, but did you see Trainwreck? No. The okay, Amy, not Amy Schumann? Yeah, Amy yeah. Schumann. Not not to derail to derail this, but that's the other recent film I've seen that's made me think about rom-coms and what I do and don't mm. like about them and to what extent you can take yeah. the shape of a rom-com and tell a story that I actually care about within it. Yeah. yeah, I like rom-coms, but yeah. as you say, they can become so formulaic. Yeah. And the more formulaic, the less successful. That's interesting um, though because Trainwreck I felt like really betrayed its sense of character integrity in a way that results didn't. That's Um, one of the two majority readings of it. The other main reading of it, which was more my one, um, is that it uses the characters um, to redeem the format. Um, So I had a more positive experience of the film than you did, I think, although I have a lot of the same um, reservations about it. But anyway, I don't mean to drag us onto Trainwreck, but but I do think anyone who who enjoyed Trainwreck um, should see results. Yeah, I'll, I'll co-sign that, even though there isn't uh, John Senna improving his way through some of the <laughs> Did you know that every single train wreck, uh, line in Trainwreck that John Senna has was improv Really? And those are some of the best lines. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Amazing. So moving from uh, that to something of a completely different uh, character... Tehran Taxi, a.k.a. Taxi, yeah. a.k.a. Jafar Panahi's Taxi, which yeah. is the name it's premiering under in Toronto. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so it's now been released under three different titles in three different territories. Um, regardless of that, um, how do you feel about the third film by a man who's been banned from filmmaking? 
I want to know more about um, just how real this ban is because when you see this guy driving around Tehran making what is quite obviously a fairly well set up, very well scripted, supposedly improvisational um, documentary style film, um, you have to ask yourself, how committed are the authorities to looking the other way? But um, as a reasonably trenchant criticism of those same authorities, which also manages to be a very nice small film with a lot of um, fairly resonant mm. um, Iranian and Iranian transcending content in it, I, f I found it a delight. I found it completely mm. rewarding. Um, there were one or two things about it that didn't fully work for me, in particular a child actor who, play, who plays a fairly major part in it, mm. um, was a little bit too obviously um, hitting her lines as hard as she possibly could. Mm. Um, but I liked it quite a lot more than the other one of those three films that I've seen, um, the the one where he's in his apartment. This and is not a film. This is not a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that I found a little bit more aimless, mm. whereas this, this felt like a really nice balance between um, script and improvisation, although yeah. I suspect it was all fully scripted. Yeah, yeah. What was your experience of it? Um, yeah, again, like I, I did have that feeling of how much of this is completely scripted. Is there an improvisational part? But um, I, I kind of let that go when I was pretty early on. Um, yeah, I, f I found it really a really nice, a really nice film. Um, just the the balance of of characters and topics. Um, so he's driving around in this taxi with apparently. A, camera set up a secret camera or whatever except that it keeps taking several different angles and what have you um, and his passengers keep spotting it yeah. and saying what is this um and people recognize him oh far, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, um, that, was, that was really nicely yeah that's quite a nice yeah. yeah um particularly the interaction he has with one yeah. of his passengers who turns out to be um a, a downloading pirate yeah yeah who's, who's actually using his taxi to sell copies of various films, films to yeah various um, addresses but uh, yeah and, uh, I, I found it really, really interesting and really nice, and and there's a lot of he does that as you'd imagine in a film of the sort. There are a range of passengers which sort of expose you to a, a range of issues happening in Iran at the moment, um, to a range of different people. So there's older ladies, there's uh, a couple who are having uh, almost a um, Asghar Fahadi moment. Um, <laughs> it did. It felt very yeah. Fahadi, that uh, whole thing. And and then there's this guy who's doing the 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 pirated film, or or, mm. or at least the illegal films um, coming into the country, um, who who is trying to do the hey I'm your friend and you can help me with my business kind of thing. So th there's a range of experiences happening, um, uh, and and I think it's yeah it's really nicely put together. I, I quite enjoyed it. Mm. Um, do you think for somebody who doesn't know who Jafar Pahani is? Or is not not really experienced in Iranian films. Do you think it would work for them? Or do you yeah, yeah. I, I actually, think so. I do. It's, I th it, the for one thing, all of, all of that information is built into the film yeah, quite early on. The action sort of travels along quite nicely. Like it, the whole idea of he's driving this taxi and it's a little bit kind of fake, um, but at the same time he's meeting all these different people. Yeah, it just kind of it's it's not a, it's not a story as such but there's so many kind of there's but, such a movement of the segments that it actually works quite nicely as a narrative as an episodic narrative it works quite well but also um genuinely just mm. the experience of sitting there experiencing driving around Tehran was yeah. surprisingly involving yeah and, um, and and the whole weirdness of the taxi system there where you 
you just drive around and then people flag you down you pick someone up who's not actually going where you're going but it seems to be people are going on really short trips I was talking with a colleague um, just a couple of days ago actually who had taken a taxi trip a while ago in New Zealand where the driver said saw someone trying to flag them down on the side of the road and said oh do you mind if I pick this person up and take them somewhere and he was like oh yeah okay and then he said and then we went like completely out of the way from where I was and then we had to come back and then, um, and then how do we figure out the cost of that you know um, but it seems to be like the norm there that you're just driving along and someone flags you down and you know it's, maybe it's really hot there and so maybe walking a couple of kilometres is going to be a bad thing particularly if you're a woman in a full hajib you know um, so you just get a taxi for a two kilometre walk I mean, it seems weird to me, but um, yeah, it was just strange enough and interesting enough in terms of the characters to kind of keep it moving quite and nicely. I've, I've gleaned the impression from Iranian films, and not so much from the handful of Iranians I've known personally, that Iranian culture is quite combative, um, mm. not in a pejorative sense, but in the sense that two chance-met strangers will enter into quite a heated argument and think nothing of doing so, yeah. which for dramatic purposes works quite well. Yeah. So there are, there, are some, there are some quite good exchanges between the yeah. passengers. Um, nice. they, they work well to, to convey a lot of information, and they're also reasonably dramatic without being, you know, without being Fahadi dramatic for the most part, although yeah. there, is, there is that one there exception. Is that, there is that scripted kind of sense to it as well. Yeah. Like that yeah. first couple where you've got the, the lady and where you've got the guy who's pretending to be some sort of criminal yeah. as a kind of devil's advocate, really. And then there's the older lady and they're having a debate back and forth and you're kind of like, mm, yeah, this is quite... Now, have either of you seen um, Kiristami's Ten? No. No. Okay, or Taste of Cherry? No, that is that is the one that I keep on meaning to watch and I've, I've yeah. had it out of video on multiple times and somehow it always ends up being the one that I take back unwatched. But right. so guiltily because no. those, those are two Kiristami films that both involve people driving around in oh, cars yeah, yeah. and Ten in particular has the fixed camera yep. aspect to it and I was just wondering if there's any sort of assonance or resonance or if that's just a sort of coincidental signifier that doesn't, isn't meant to link him back to Kiristami no it's an intelligent question but I, I can't in terms of films that are more likely to get uh, seen by people here in terms of coming back <laughs> Uh, a most violent year, which we talked about before, Oscar Isaac, I, Oscar Jessica Isaac, Chastain, Jessica yeah. Chastain, yeah. very much so. Yes, um, and and also my impatience of getting from the assassin to this, and I found this a really interesting film to watch in that fest- festival context, but yeah. also just this sense of the film history that it brings. I felt like it was a very good film. That's major fault was that it kept referencing great films. Um, from the actual um, appearance of Oscar Isaac feels very much Al Pacino in yeah, The Godfather. It really does. And, yeah. and it, it just, there's really no reason to try to put The Godfather in people's minds when your mm. film's being made. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and, and I was curious as to whether, whether it's what's so supposed to be auto-critique of that because um, his character is so um, such a um, deconstruction of typical masculine portraits yeah. of organized crime films. Yeah, um, well, we probably got I, quite too deep I, without talking about it on the surface. But I thought it was so. doing two bits of work. Um, on the one hand, it was a status claim because the thing that I kept experiencing throughout this film, which I enjoyed a lot, 
um, was that it was aspiring to be not just a good film, but a great film. There were all yeah. sorts of ways in which it was, um, I guess, portentous is the word I'm reaching for. I, mm. I, I like J.C. Chando as a director very much. So this is a film um, about a man who's... And he's made Margin Call and All is Lost. Yeah. Who are... yeah, yeah, yeah. Which are two of my favorite American films of, of the last five years, I would say. So I was really, wow. I was okay. really excited to see this. Yeah. Um, I, I just I think he's a really good, slightly more than meat and potatoes art house director, and I, I don't say that disparagingly. I mean he's someone who tells good strong stories and makes them really intelligent, um, and this was all of that. But it it was loaded with signifiers that seemed to me to say um, masterpiece, and it, it isn't one. Um, it's just a good strong film. I had the interesting experience of walking out of it simultaneously thinking that was really good and that was really disappointing and the, the reason for the disappointment was that it does things like make you think of Al Pacino in The Godfather yeah. um, but also I did think that was doing a bit of useful work because you don't actually know going into it um, whether this guy who we see at the very start of the film making a major business deal which may ruin his, his fairly well established but not yet thriving business in, um, in, in heating oil distribution, um, of all things, to be at the center of, of, of a major American and that film. And that was really interesting, because that was a milieu I hadn't seen I know, before. I know, I didn't and know it the first like, Something I'd not seen. But the me- the was... mechanics of oil distribution, who knew it could yeah, be so yeah. interesting? It was enough kind of tied to the very typical kind of mobster Well, that's it. You don't know whether this guy is going to turn out to be the godfather. Yeah. So, so to that extent, yeah. his appearance kind of built in some That was one of the more interesting parts of the film to me, was that it set up this kind of possible um, mobster-esque yeah. character who was striving not to be that. And when you find out, which you do reasonably yeah, early yeah. on, this is, not a, this is not a particular yeah. spoiler, that he's married to, to Jessica Chastain, Chastain, who is the daughter of a minor mobster. mobster. Yeah, who um, we never meet. No. No, we just, we just hear about her. Now, that is a spoiler, because, you spe- because I spent the whole film waiting for this guy to appear, waiting for her right. to... Yeah. I mean, it, fairly early on in the film, she basically goes to him, because they're... Their business is being hit by a rain of thefts. Yeah. He's promised that he'll deal with it. He's insistent on doing it within the law um, for reasons which are partly moral, or mostly moral, but also partly pragmatic. Yeah. Um, and and she, also, but also she character very, driven, I think, as yeah, well. I think yeah, that's, he, it's a far, part about who yeah, he is. Yeah. But she's saying that if you don't sort this out, then I'm I going will. to. Yeah. And I kept waiting for us to see what that would mean. And, yeah. and yeah. I, yeah. I yeah. felt at the end of the film that her character didn't necessarily need to have been allowed to deliver on that promise, but she, she needed more room within the film than she's given. Mm. Um, but at yeah. the same time... More, really, more proof that she could. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, just slightly more. I had the same sort of slight disappointment with the film. Where it was a perfectly interesting film. Yeah. Well acted, reasonably well written, reasonably well directed, but it didn't it didn't really pop in terms of mm. um, standing out. Yeah. I I liked it a lot. I was really glad I saw it. Yeah. I I was really grooving on it, and I I but I I do think that it's just. Perhaps because its aspirations are so high and because its milieu is so familiar in the yeah, generics yeah. in it's, terms of yeah. New York and organized crime, even though the specifics of it are quite distinct, yeah. Yeah. the general of it feels like, oh, this is something we've seen before, and mm. so you have to impress me yeah. in a way that 
um, having set that film in Topeka or something wouldn't have yeah. would have suddenly yeah. been a fresh yeah, and yeah, different yeah, yeah. setting yeah. setting it in southern France or wherever. I, yeah. I think he um, wanted to. I, I really feel like this was meant to be the definitive Yeah. The definitive mm-hmm. film of New York in this era. It's like this is what New York culture is, this is what it took to succeed in New York mm-hmm. in the eighties, which is in itself an interesting in thing the because 80s. I'm the eighties yeah. are yeah. still kind of there's still an era that I that could stand to be explored quite a lot yeah, more. Yeah. We Own the Night came to mind as well, yeah. um, which also, ex- the James Gray James film, Gray film. explores that era, which I... I don't think I have. Which is which is a film yeah. that I, I don't think overall I liked as much, but has some real high points in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, when did that come out? A uh, few years back, few, 2006 yeah, or seven. Uh, Mark, Marky Mark's in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Right um, and Joaquin Phoenix. That's exactly um, the point where I went from seeing relatively few films to seeing... Lots yeah. of films. It got a really limited release. I mean, yeah. I remember having to go down to Sylvia Park to see it at the huh. time. But um, but yeah, I do. I, it is that interesting thing where a film is easier sometimes to talk about about what doesn't work than what does work. Yeah. When so much of it work, it does a lot of good work effortlessly. Yeah. yeah. That it well, suddenly. It's, it's weird because um, I I did like you. I thought this was a really good film. I was enjoying it. Um, but it gave me the sense that it should have been more than it was. Um, I admit, I, I took a lot of expectations into it. I thought all I is, didn't. I thought I, All Is Lost was a fantastic film. And a lot, of people, a lot of people found it quite frustrating. A lot of people found it the aspirational miss yeah. um, that I'm not quite saying this one was. I don't think this was a miss, but I do think See, it was. I knew the name J.C. Chandler, but I, I'm just not really connected I, with the name. I love Margin Crawl. I've, I've watched Margin Crawl like six that. or seven times. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, really. I saw really. it once. I thought it was pretty good. But I I just, yeah, no, it never I, occurred to me to revisit it. I've yeah. had this exchange with Hugh. He he had your reaction exactly. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I just I find it so intelligently written. I I love good writing. I love a film which trusts its writing, and yet manages to look like a film. It's it's visibly a first film. There's I, I a lot of things yeah, about it. Yeah, I think it that's that the thing of, is that is the direction of it felt. Very you can first you can tell that he's and, feeling his way, yeah. but um, but the writing is so secure and the cast is so good. Um, so much, so good, much yes. of the acting, um, with the slight exception of um, oh, oh, evil Lion King, um, Jeremy Irons. Right. With the slight exception of Jeremy Irons, the casting is fantastic. Who else um, is in it? Kevin Spacey. Oh, um, oh Kevin right. Spacey. Is it um, in it? Casey. No, no, no. Um, I'm going to completely fail to remember any of their names now because this is what I do in real time. I have to look things it's up not, on IMDb. Uh, um, it's not old Christian Bale, is it? No, no, no. Um, come to my rescue, Doug. Who's in it? Oh, well, Zachary Quinto, Thank Demi you. Moore, oh, Paul yes. Bettany, Stanley Paul, Tucci. Paul Bettany and Stanley Tucci are both fantastic in it. Zachary Quinto is really, really good. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's a really good ensemble cast. Um, yeah. No, it's a fantastic and, cast, well-written. I just, the direction wasn't strong enough to make it a film that I thought I'd come back to. But, you know. Yeah. These things can happen. <laughs> Let's talk about um, a film that I know that you were definitely more positive on. I don't know about Jacob, but uh, and one that I again hope will come back, but I'm not sure will, which is seventy one. I've been informed quite positively that it won't be, but I'm still hoping to be proved wrong. Oh, um, seventy one is a thriller about a young British soldier who is deployed unexpectedly to Belfast right at the point where the troubles are going from quite bad to major war zone. Yeah. And he goes out with his troop onto the streets 
and gets separated from them and it is a man alone trying to survive and what yeah. turns out to be quite hostile territory story. It's kind of like a 24-hour thriller piece, really. Very it? much. It's exactly what it is. It's simultaneously an intelligent political film about the troubles in which it's nothing is simplified. Really good. No one is treated as, uh, with the slight exception of some of the more sinister yeah, yeah. and manipulative British Special Forces guys, um, no one is treated as a cipher. Everyone has their own set of real views, yeah. and it's shocking and thrilling, and you could watch it. You could almost watch it as a pure thriller. There's yeah. a, there's, towards the end, it does this interesting thing of going from high-octane, yeah, heart-racing thrills kind of to, to being more of a small-scale suspense yeah. thriller. Yeah. I've, I've read an interview with the director where he said he did that quite deliberately precisely because films don't do it and it, it is right. counterintuitive and, and I, have I no suspect idea of the director, some people Jan would Dimage, or? I think it's his first oh, film I wrote it down somewhere yeah, Jan Demarge yeah, but yeah. it's written by Gregory Burke and the writing is the writing is really good yeah. again really well acted have you seen Bloody Sunday? no Paul oh, Greengrass's first film have you seen it? no because okay. it's a um, it, I mean that was what Greengrass got his um, reputation built on was this very no. immersive verite um, take on the troubles and um, and I, I don't no, I'm, not, I'm not enough of this having seen in 71 I would really like to see that yeah. because I came well, away from one of the things I thought about this was I haven't seen the troubles treated this well in film before but I wouldn't call it verite as such oh god no no, no, it's a genre thriller. Yeah, and and that was one of the things. And so I is it shot I, like a genre thriller? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I would, I was really surprised because I was expecting it to be a real, almost more verite piece about the troubles in Northern Ireland I about think Belfast. If but it had been actually, made thirty years ago, it would just be a good strong thriller. But it's yeah. almost shocking to see a film which troubles to have an original story right. within the within, thriller frame. Yeah, yeah. Because like you've got this whole idea I mean, of the war and uh, the the war with the IRA and the British in, in Belfast, which is something, at least in New Zealand, we know a little bit about, and and you kind of expect there to be a political aspect. And I definitely expected it to be more kind of socio-political, a bit, of, bit more historical kind of stuff in it, but it, it's a pure thriller film yeah. set in the midst of this. So it's well, like it's completely captured within that setting, but it's not reliant on that setting it's not saying i'm trying to say this about the conflict it's just a guy that gets caught in this place um so basically um it, it's very specific in that you, you know you get a, a a group of british soldiers sent to try and do a routine check of a place where troubles are supposed to be happening and they get put with the Ulster forces who are a little more militant and so they're going through kind of local people's houses and giving them a bit of a rough up um, and they're really hated um, and then you get the local forces who are doing what they can to try and um, undermine what's happening but also um, do things like um, grab weapons because they're not well supplied themselves um, so they've got all that stuff happening around it but the actual story is just this guy who gets lost in the midst of that, who has no real sense of what that's about because he's just arrived there. And then he just finds himself in the midst of this, has to run off and hide in somebody's toilet, and then gets picked <laughs> up by this little kid who um, happens to be the son of a well-known sort of um, British, yeah, Protestant family um, and militant Um and then it, it, the story just revolves around him trying to get out of this 
really dangerous situation. But it's one of those films where the yeah. fact that it's not about the setting. Yeah, it's allow, not about the setting, but it's totally but, in the setting. But the fact that it's not about the setting allows it to be about the setting. setting it's yeah. one of those films which is yeah. more powerfully about the setting because yeah. it doesn't make a mistake. It's really, around the, yeah, really exactly. smartly yeah. written. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you don't need to know anything about it to be totally gripped by the, the drama happening. Um, I would actually really like to discuss it um, with anyone from Ireland, but in particular anyone who lived through that period in Belfast. I'd really like to know what they made of it. It's, it's just a really interesting film about its place, but yeah. it's mostly a fantastic thriller about yeah. this kid trying to survive. And yeah. um, he's what's what's the guy who plays him? Uh, Jack O'Connell. Yeah, he's so good. I yeah. now I had actually not seen him before. I'd managed to dodge everything. He's kind of been in. what's he been in? Um, he was, um, in, he some, was in some that, really well received that, um, stuff. Started up last year. Okay, I missed that. Um, yeah, I and, didn't, and he's been in a few other things recently. He's I, he's kind of I, just I, sort of young talent. Really, Unbroken's the one he's famous yeah. for. Yeah, yeah Unbroken. So, yeah, so he was just kind of starting to pop as a result of that yeah. thing, which I had I'd very carefully not gone to Unbroken because it just sounded ghastly. But apparently, he was fantastic in it. I didn't mind um, it actually. He's, he's really like, good in this. Yeah. This is England. He was in. Oh, oh okay. What was okay. he in this in England? I did see that. Uh, I don't know. Um, he, was, he would have been much younger. He was Pukey Nichols. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, uh, yeah. File under Shane Meadows. Uh, I still haven't seen yeah. any of his films. Um, well, I love that Shane Meadows is a favorite. Yeah, we know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a lot more than Ex Machina. 71 is the one that I came away from yeah. thinking, in what in what universe does this not get a mainstream release? It, yeah. just, it just screams yeah, mainstream. Yeah, it's a great thriller. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's got some historical significance to back it up and, and just really smartly written. Yeah. Well, while we're speaking about films that are shocking that they didn't get a mainstream release, let's talk about Arabian Nights, volumes one through three. Why <laughs> is that not playing on Queen Street? <laughs> <laughs> you, you'd think it'd be six hours looping at IMAX. Uh, right I know, now. I know. I just I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, had you seen any Miguel Gomez films before? Taboo. Uh, coming in? I, so I, you saw Taboo as well. Were you I, a fan? I was 50% of a very big fan for Taboo. And fortunately, it was the, the latter half of the film right. I enjoyed. I found the... I was reminded in the wake of Arabian Night by the extent to which I had not liked the first half <laughs> of Taboo. Um, and I... I wanted to go to Taboo when um, the New Zealand Film Society played it recently, just to, to remind myself of exactly what the experience of it had been. Right. I found it such an interesting film. I was so engaged with it. I was so glad that I'd seen it. And having seen it, um, for people who have not seen Taboo, it does this very formally interesting thing in the second half, where having been set in, I, I think it is contemporary, contemporary Lisbon, Lisbon, it yes. drops back two generations and becomes a silent film in the sense that it, none of the humans in it speak and it's subtitled. Um, but there's background noise. Yeah. I'd never seen that done before and it was absolutely fascinating. As well as, you know, yeah. at that point, the story became really interesting and I started quite enjoying it, um, having been rather disengaged from it previously. So I completely wanted to see Arabian Nights despite the fact that it was the longest thing in the film festival. Um, Admittedly divided over three screenings. Yeah, right. I was initially going to see it um, one, two, three on the Saturday afternoon, but because of my friend had his 50th birthday, I ended up having to see it on three separate nights, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> because I found that hard enough going. 
Um, so it's an anthology film. Um, one of a number of anthology films that I saw at the festival, actually. There were, there were a few of them one way right. or another. Um, and its highs were very, very high. The parts of it that I liked, I liked very much, and I would yeah. really regret not having them in my memory. But having said that, I could absolutely not recommend it to anyone because I found the lows so low and so prevalent. Um, I found it an absolutely maddening, frustrating experience because it simultaneously shows you so much talent, so much brilliance, so much um, originality, and so much willingness to sit there twiddling its thumbs, pretending um, that these things it's doing involving, for example, chaffinches, <laughs> are interesting, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say they are not. Well, I guess I'd, I'd only take issue with the prevalence because I would agree that the last hour of it is by far the most um, patience-testing uh, bit that I saw um, at the cinema. Um, and I, But I found the... F- the opening of the first film, which is sort of this 20-minute prologue where you're still trying to figure out what it is, really engaging. Same, um, same. And, and then once My it hopes got, were so it got going, and I, I, I would say through the, through the whole of the first film, I was still quite into it. Um, but and then the second... that, that opening, to some extent, um, constitutes taking out an overdraft. I mean, that opening is making a claim as to what the film will end up being, and I didn't end up feeling that there was sufficient connective tissue between the film's parts to justify um, that implicit claim. So I ended up liking the opening less retrospectively than I liked it in the moment. Hmm. But sorry, I, yeah, I guess that no, that, that's, I guess the thing is that in the second film, I wasn't as fond of overall as the first, but the centerpiece of it was... so was, good! Um, so it's called Tears of the Judge, and I don't think I saw better 45 minutes of cinema in the entire festival. Um... It's it's embedded in the middle of this six hour piece, but the so the the basic conceit of Arabian Nights is that Miguel Gomez spent a year going around Portugal, hearing stories about um, the lives that had been affected by the austerity measures that mm-hmm. had been imposed on Portugal as a result of its financial crisis, yeah. and uh, adapting them to cinema. And loosely using the format of the Arabian Nights in various ways. And the adaptations range wildly from basically straight-up documentary interview to esoteric uh, recreations. And in this Tears of the Judge, it starts as a simple uh, court case held in this open amphitheater. Um, and you, yet obviously from the get-go, it's slightly uh, stylized. But um, the dispute seems a simple one between a uh, landlord and a tenant who sold the landlord's furniture to pay for their rent. Uh, and then uh, it unfolds in, a, in ways that I would never want to spoil for anybody, but that uh, certainly uh, simultaneously go outside of the bounds of naturalism and also get deeper and deeper into indicting specific elements of of the Portuguese government and the the force of law that's controlling the system at that time in, in very, such a competitive way that I've never seen. Very formally controlled. The interesting thing about it in retrospect is that it, it has a recursive narrative structure where each bit of story drops back 
to an explanatory context which becomes its own story which right. then <laughs> turns out to have its own context and this, the film keeps that going for longer than you'd think um, and my favourite film that I saw at this festival um, Guy Madden's Forbidden Room does something very very similar and keeps it going for I think over two hours um, mm. so that was an interesting connection to come away making but yeah I agree it's brilliant and it's really really tightly controlled in exactly the way that the film overall is not. So it kind of stands both as a high point and as a reproach to the rest of the film for me. So interesting that it can be both at once. I agree with you. I'm really glad I saw it. Wouldn't have missed it. I wish I'd listened to the person who told me the second film is the one to go to. You can skip the rest. Um, but having seen the second film, I think I would have felt that I had to see the rest because... Yeah. And the top, of the, the, top like of the third film is really strong as well. What was, what was the top that of was, the third that was, It went back to the time of Scheherazade and it was... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I like that. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the thing is that the, the ending is so misguided and so slow and so patience-inducing that it really casts I, a retrospective pall that is perhaps uh, undeserved over the rest of it. Not completely. There were other moments where my patience was similarly tested. I mean, having seen the first film, I wasn't on fire to see the second, and I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I liked Tears of the Judge. Um, but, I mean... Not to go too hard on how awful the Chaffinch Hour was, if it was only an hour, but what kept me in the seat, what kept me in my seat in the end was one part, pure bloody-minded determination to see it out, and three parts, fascination to see how many people would walk out of the theatre, and it was quite a few before the thing finally ended. That's... Yeah, I mean, it's, it, is, it is something that I, I feel like I want to be enthusiastic and recommend to people, but the the people that I can re- recommend it to are very small. But if you th- if you're remotely curious about it, it, I, it probably isn't a bad idea to test your waters with the second one and then see the first one, and then if you're still uh, intrigued, go see the third one. That's nicely put. <laughs> but, I mean, if if Gomez makes another two hour film, I will unquestionably go to it. If he makes another six hour film. I will be standing well back and watching other people's responses before I make up my mind. Fair enough. Now, I think possibly the same year that uh, Taboo played, another film uh, called Starlet played. Was that the same year? Um, I don't know if it was the same year, but I definitely okay. saw it. I well, it's in the past, so we'll just hold on to this awkward segue while we <laughs> keep it going. Because what I'm trying to do is uh, link from uh, Arabian Nights That's to Tangerine, mean, yeah. which I did not see, but uh, you and um, And I David saw Starlet and Tangerine. And I yes. saw Tangerine on the strength of having seen Starlet. And, and did you interview Sean Baker, or did you just meet him when he uh, came? No, I met him when he was here, yeah. Because yeah, um, Sean Baker, the, the director, came for um, the for Q&As for the screenings of um, Starlet when it came. And and it was a film that we got at the very end of its festival run in New Zealand, so I think it played like... Often we get stuff straight out of Cannes. I think this may have played Cannes, or at least some of the other festivals. Um... And then we waited almost the entire year and a little bit to get it at NZFF. Um, and it turned out to be this really surprising film that was really well written, well directed, interesting characters. Um, and so I thought, well, anything these guys produce, I'm basically off the strength of this, I'm going to sign up to see. And uh, so Tangerine was the next one, uh, which for want of a bit of description as a Christmas film 
<laughs> said on Christmas Eve. Kind of like a Christmas Carol. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly like. Well, for yep. me, it's, yep. it's 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 replaced. Well, not replaced, but it's become one of my favorite Christmas films. It's set on Christmas. Are Eve. you planning on sharing it with the girls? And uh... <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not straight away, but um, <laughs> eventually, I'm sure they'll they'll begin to see it. And the stockings are hung by the. Uh... <laughs> so it, it's a story of of a couple of um, transgender transsexual hookers, transgender working people. girls. The main character of who Cindy has just been released from prison and so she's come back onto the streets with her friend Alexandra and she has heard some disturbing news about her boyfriend slash pimp um, that he's maybe been getting with some other girls while she's been away. Um, so the film basically is about her kind of rampage around mm-hmm. inner city LA to try and track down the truth of the story about what he's been up to and with who, and then to go and confront him and whoever he's been getting with. And so in that sense, that, that whole sort of sense of, of kind of slightly over-the-top campy sort of drama is very much happening. Post-screening, I heard... I, I heard I didn't look a, a lot into it beforehand, but I heard afterwards that um, Sean Baker and Chris Burgosh, who are the producers, uh, producer and director, who have been working together since Greg the Bunny, I think, um, right? Wow. Had come up with a slightly more kind of serious script, and they took it to the the lead a- actresses and sort of talked about what they were wanting to achieve. And they said, "Hey, this is a bit too serious. The kind of the, like let's look at transgender issues." Um, and make a bit of a drama and they said no let's make something a little lighter and so they they put this sort of sheen on it which was a bit more kind of over the top comedic um while at the, so it's a very comedic film while at the same time kind of uh, illustrating some of the darkness of is that it, kind of would lifestyle. you call it unflinching or is it flinching i would say not so much flinching no, as carefully flinching. avoiding yeah i'm skirting yeah, skirting. It very, it very much kind of interfaces with some it, of the the less comfortable. Like it, it, it felt a little too strategically careful for yeah. my liking. In in what I would imagine, are having heard that explanation, are mm. exactly the mm. ways um, the, mm. that um, the the two actor actresses. Um, I don't have the right um, gender nouns for this would have asked for so I mean that the fact that they asked for it is interesting to me and I'm well I, th- I think quick, I do think... they identify as female in the film yeah yeah so yeah, then yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, def- cool. definitely actress um, they, but I, th- I think the thing was that the director was initially going to write a similar sort of thing but it was going to be a more serious kind of yeah. dramatic piece do and they any... said no let's make it something a little more kind of high drama a little more camp do you have a sense of what the tenor of that seriousness would have been because I could imagine how you could make an earnest version of that film which well, I would have hated but I no, think... no not earnest but I think it would have been a little more dark like overtly dark yep, without the comedy yep. I found it too cute for my liking where, that's it... exactly what troubled me about it oh, the, te- okay. the see, tension see. between the comedy and um, what I'm going to go ahead and call the sordid reality yeah. of their working lives What's... didn't quite gel for me if... okay so I, 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 it worked for me because I definitely this kind of dark and as you say sordid layer of things yeah. going on because basically you've got these working girls who are I guess they're working just because of the awful reality of their life is that you know they find themselves needing to make money they're skirting the kind of the law and so they're um, working in terms of some sort of prostitution on the streets you wouldn't call them prostitutes as such sure you would well I don't know sure you wouldn't you yeah maybe um, they they're having sex with people for money. What else would you call them? Yeah, I don't I don't know that that was okay. Maybe maybe that's maybe that is true. <laughs> that, that, that would be their job, but 
the film portrays them as more than their job, I think. Uh, I'd be interested to know what the Auckland Prostitutes Collective would say about the two sides of that argument, because I think okay. you could say that there's nothing wrong with the job. No, that's, no. That's no, their no, job. No, 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 But, but, but that I whole, think you are more than your you, job. You could make, yeah, you yeah, could sure, make sure. a film about prostitutes. Oh, sure. No, I, I, don't, don't, think, I don't think I, this I is a film about prostitution. They're not prostitutes in the sense that yeah. that's all they are. No. They're, they're people who work as prostitutes. Yeah, yeah. But the, the tenor of the film is very comedic. Like, it aims on the comedic, but there's a very dark kind of underscoring to that. Like, um, the work, um, Cindy, the main character, is, is on the hunt to find the girl who her boyfriend has cheated on the fish um, and so there's this sort of dark reality of pimping out girls and then kind of being in a relationship and it's very uncomfortable territory but they they make it something that's quite if not relatable in the sense that like there's not a world that I know is very much kind of yeah. there's friendship involved like Cindy and Alexandra the two main characters have this kind of scratchy companionship which is partially their friends, but they also have their own agendas and they don't listen to each other, which is something that I related to in terms of friendships, which are very much... Everyone has their slight, their own sort of personal agenda. You come to life with your own sort of view of what your needs are and your friends have the same sort of point of view and you overlap in some ways and, and hopefully you have some sense of, I care about you and so I'm going to prioritise your views to some degree, but it doesn't always happen like that. Um, and, and this film kind of captures that quite nicely where you've got these friendships that are complicated by the need to make money and the ne- and, and uh, your own personal needs and desires. Did you like it? But Yeah, I loved it. You um, loved it. It's a milieu that I don't really know in a city LA and how many transgender people do I know? A couple maybe, but they're not my closest friends. And so it's like a, a whole world that's slightly separate from mine, but there are a whole lot of things happening that I do kind of recognise and understand. And so you've got these two working girls, but there's a whole, another um, character who's uh, an Armenian taxi driver who is engaging um, transgender prostitutes partially as a release from his sort of... He's, he's married and he has kids and he feels stressed out and, and, and it's against his kind of cultural kind of norms. But he's basically trying to step outside of that because he feels stressed out and, and he just wants some sort of relief from that. Yeah, and yeah. exactly what that means in terms of his sexuality is, yeah. is left very nicely undefined. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was really nicely done, but there's also some great comedy out of that. I, th- I just think the way that they put it yeah. together was really quite yeah. nicely played. It's interesting hearing you describe this, because you're describing a film that I absolutely saw, and yet didn't quite experience the way you experienced it. I mean, I liked it. Hmm. Um, I liked it fine, and yet it was one of the films that I came out of thinking, I wanted that to be something different. Um, I wanted... I wanted more acknowledgement of the darkness and I'm not sure that's a smart thing to want. I think the film that I came out wanting could very easily be way too much and also less respectful of the character's own sense of their reality than Mm -hmm. than the film that they made, which is actually, in a lot of ways, a puffy piece of genre fun, which also um, opens a fairly... a fairly unflinching, in fact, reality on... Yeah, because it's very camp in many ways. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But at the same time... They are so over the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From some of the particularly more campy transgender people that I've met, it's true to form. Yeah, But yeah. the darkness is not... They just don't major on that as a dramatic point, but it's there, and you can yeah. see it, and you can There's, feel it. At the point where they 
finally succeed mm. in tracking down the woman yeah. that Cindy is looking for. She's working in this unutterably Awful. sordid yeah. two-room um, motel, motel unit. complex with, I think, something like five, five, five or six people, five women servicing clients simultaneously in um, various rooms. And they, the film does not make a big thing of how gross it is, which mm. just underlines how gross it is. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, the the reality of the lives they're kind of 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 the scene they're caught up in is absolutely there for you. And also the fact that um, Cindy's friend, whose name I can't... Alexandra. Alexandra is spending the entire film, pretty much, trying to talk people into coming yeah, to... Yeah, trying to promo a little, um, a little song singing, and dancing that a she's got gig she's got that night, and it's... At a pub that she's not getting paid for. She's it, just wanting to get people in. In fact, I think she's, she's paid for the privilege yeah, of doing yeah, it, yeah. and nobody turns up, and it's awful, and it's the only thing that actually meant something positively to her in the entire film. Yeah. And she's just left out there hanging. By yeah, and her, her best friend that she's just sort of spent her time putting into has failed to appear on time. So there's a lot of harsh reality in the yeah. film, in fact. And yet, I did end up wanting more. I ended up feeling that it was a little too safe. I can't fully justify that listening to myself saying so. Jacob's response seems a very valid one to me. It wasn't the response that I had. I'd be interested to see the film again and see what I thought of it a second time. It's on a theatrical schedule, so you might have a chance. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Now, this is probably the longest anyone has ever gone discussing Tangerine without using the word iPhone. So I just wanted to ask really quickly before we move to our next film. Um, it's famously shot on an iPhone. Yeah. Um, how did that impact your viewing experience? Did you feel like you noticed it immediately? Did you care? Did you feel I, I, like it I knew you? that it was shot on an iPhone, um, but I didn't really care. And to be honest, I didn't really... I noticed, but it, it was, didn't matter. It was on at the Sky City Theatre. I yeah. have long legs. When I go to Sky City, I always sit in the front row. So I saw it from a distance of maybe 10 feet. So the fact that it was a very in-your-face filming technique worked quite well for my in-your-face experience of it. Yeah. You know they have aisle seats there, right? Feet straight out in front of you just works so much better. <laughs> but Touché. It, it was like the whole film had a very immediate sense to it. Like the characters are very vibrant and very in-your-face and very moving very quickly. And so the filming style suited the film. Yeah, it um, did. and it didn't stick out from the film. It, it didn't seem too rough at all. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, one last film that uh, all three of us shared uh, before we wrap this up, um, the, which is the opening night film uh, by our friend Yorgos Lanthimos from Greece, who uh, started with yep. Canetta, brought us a little quiet film that was a uh, Greek family comedy called Dog Tooth that uh, did its share of alienation in 2009. <laughs> Followed up with Alps, which I quite enjoyed. I and it never made it to New Zealand. Well, no, no, it was so apparently disliked by the festival that they didn't even bother to program it. Wow. And then his subsequent feature then became the opening, opening night, night film, which is a pretty good um, career, oh. per, career arc there. Um, and I thought a quite daring one, but... Um, the response that I generally heard about uh, the opening night screening, which could have been a bit of an unfortunate choice, seemed to have been quite positive. I didn't see Same any man. walkouts from where I was. Maybe No, actually, um, maybe I saw two. But I, like, 
I claimed in my review that I only saw two people walk out and it was like 30 seconds before the end of the film. Oh, okay. And in response to that claim, someone on my Facebook said, well, I was sitting upstairs and I saw six or seven people separately walk out and I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. Yeah. Um, so I guess a few people did walk out, but my sense um, was that it was an overwhelmingly well-received yeah. opening night film and deservedly so i i just loved it <laughs> yeah it was, it was such a such an enjoyable way to start the festival i, I was I, so pleased that they programmed it i said before that um clouds of silver maria was probably the best film that i saw but the lobster is probably my favorite film of the, the festival because it was really good in so many ways but yugos lanthimos has a comic sensibility that just connects with where i am and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I loved that film, and I love Dog Tooth. I, I haven't seen Alps, and I'm really keen to see it. Um, there's just something about the kind of the overt comedic mixed with a very kind of dark, twisted sensibility that fits with me really I'm, nicely. I wondered if you thought his his verbal style in the film was at all similar to um, Roy Anderson's. Um, they both struck me as having a, I don't mean to use this in a pejorative sense, but an Asperger's type sense of humour. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. Stating the obvious as a means of being enormously subtle. But I no, no, what I what I thought was that, because Dogtooth is, is in Greek with subtitles, right? Um, yep. And this is his first English language film. When I watched it, I wondered how many people who had seen it for the first time and were watching the subtitled version would think... Gosh, this is a bit odd. It's got a slight weird kind of tone to the to the to the dialogue, but actually, Doctor was exactly the same in the sense that the dialogue is awkward and slightly stilted. Um, and English, he does a really good job of translating that that it's mm. awkward and stilted. And the reason it, I thought it worked so perfectly for this film, I haven't seen any of his others, I blush to admit, um, is that it's about society's adherence to its own rules. Yeah. So it's, it's about slavish rule following. Yeah. And it's got all these characters who are constantly stating the obvious as if that's yeah. the only thing you can do because these are the rules yeah. of interaction. Like, <laughs> we have to make small talk now, so let's talk about what we're both yeah, thinking and yes. doing. And let's... Let's talk about the fact that we're sitting here on the side of the lawn. I have to say, Corin, and let's Colin hope that we Farrell both enjoy eating bananas. Yeah, Colin Farrell. his performance. Uh, where did he come from? Oh he is like, uh, it's it like so it was good. like that feeling of dis- finding uh, an undiscovered actor yeah. that you just happened to have been watching on screen for the last. Did, and haven't seen John C. Riley in Tale of Tales, who was kind of awfully cast. I thought in Bruges was fine, but this was a whole different. Kind of yeah, no. This the thing was, for this Colin again. Like, Colin Farrell, I thought that was just yeah. like a genre type, whereas this was such a specific, different thing that I yeah. wouldn't have. That, I don't, oh, that's I interesting. I thought it was actually quite similar to In Bruges, um, in that those gangsters also spend an awful lot of their time stating the obvious at enormous elaborate length, and that's mm. part of the brilliance of their dialogue. But that's that sort of post, it felt more part of that post Tarantino esque. Yes. kind of gangster oh, thing and it felt very much of completely. a type with that yes, whereas indeed. casting Colin Farrell as a schlubby overweight architect yeah. um, who lobster is kind of just a little bit a lobster. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, and desperately and not entirely successfully trying to determine whether he even wants to bother making emotional Can interactions he, with yeah. another person and feel slightly guilty about his brother and, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I, I just thought 
I was just shocked how much Colin Farrell yeah. stole the show in The Lobster. He was um, fantastic. He was yeah. great. He really was. Yeah. Um, uh, and like I was saying, having seen John C. Riley in Tale of Tales, which he was, to my mind, woefully miscast, to this... Because Tale of Tales is also a first English language feature yeah. by a foreign director yeah, yeah, as well, yeah. which no, is a really interesting transition to make. That, but I think he was. But this he was really nicely put in as well. I'm trying to remember who he played in Tale of Tales, which I saw on he the was the third to last day. To, um, oh, yes, he was. He to, was. Yep. Um, what's her jobs? Um, um, yes. Yes. That's, the um, Spanish yep, actress. Penelope Cruz. Yeah, Penelope Cruz, um, queen. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of many things I found. And she was good, but he she was, was okay. He was not very good at all. Mm. But I blame that on the writing and the casting. You mean the cast? Yeah. Um, but this, he was, he was so, so good. Well cast. Yes, wasn't he? He was so sweet. Oh. So sweet and hopeless. So when I um, uh, I missed the opening night screening, of course, because I wasn't yeah. here, and I sat next to somebody. At, uh, the the following a few days later, they was had a the daytime Civic? screaming, mm. and I it was at the Civic. I wanted and, to go to that again. Um, I I sat next to somebody at Arabian Nights who was like, "Oh, I just expected the whole thing to be a little bit darker, and you know, I thought it was." All a bit, you know, I, I just thought it should have been a lot darker, and I, I won't spoil exactly how she thought it would be darker. But when it got to the penultimate scene, I actually, I I reacted physically in a way I haven't reacted to a movie since Antichrist, I think. Wow. Um, in terms of... Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I was just, I was just, um, I got really lightheaded and sweating all over. There was just a point like, where that couple walked out. Um, yeah. I mean, I just had that kind of... Because it's such an unsafe... I mean, Lanthimos is such an unsafe mm. filmmaker and is constantly playing with your expectations. Yeah. I mean, there's that great scene um, about two-thirds of the way through where a group of rebels yeah. um, go to exact a revenge. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying to keep this quite vague. Yeah. Yes. And you're expecting something quite graphic and horrific. Mm. And what you get is so delightfully unexpected uh, yet misanthropically yeah. distinct yeah. from what you would <laughs> yeah. expect that it's just it's brilliant yeah. and but uh, having said that there is at least one moment in the film which is reasonably graphic you don't see an act of violence but you mm, see its yeah. aftermath there's, in, in there's, sufficient there's detail there's two of them yeah. that I can mm. think of actually yeah. one yeah. In, yes one involving that as yeah. you say by the time you reach that penultimate scene you're very well aware that yeah, he could the, do something the, here the, yeah. the, the thing which seems to be being foreshadowed may be about to occur in graphic detail on the screen yeah. um, or yeah. at the very least I may be about to observe an aftermath that I really don't want to observe but and the, I'm not going to say whether or not yeah. one does but one could Yeah, I think the thing that's really powerful about The Lobster and um, I mean, my favourite film of the festival which I think I was the only one of us that saw was The Duke of Burgundy yeah. but um, what The Duke of Burgundy and The Lobster have in common is these very esoteric scenarios that have this really strong real-world resonance yeah. about relationships yeah. and yes. the challenges of relationships mm. and the difficulties within them. And, and The Lobster is very much about what sacrifices you, you would be willing to make in order to conform to this ideal. And, mm. and Duke of Burgundy actually has sort of a... Um, similar idea in a less 
perhaps less stakes sort of way, mm-hmm. but um, it just cuts kind of deeper into the actual emotional yeah. fabric of it, whereas The Lobster's Critique is, is more of a critique, I would say, yeah. than an exploration, which sounds like a really pretentious, arbitrary thing to say, but I think I know what I mean by that. But yeah, and, and I think that's the magic of that sort of surrealism is actually mm. being able to hook it back in to a real world analog that yeah. no matter how weird and uncomfortable yeah. it gets and it get and it gets quite brutal at times and that's um Alantimo's specialty that yeah. it still feels like oh this is something that's recognizable yeah within me and i yeah. i did yeah, yeah exactly I, you guys felt the same it's, way as well yeah no it's, i completely it's something did. you recognize it's something that kind of has a a cut to it in a personal sense but it's also real and brutal enough oh, it just brings all those things together so nicely yeah yeah I came across it just like at the end of it afterwards down the in the winter garden when we were just sort of chilling and talking to people I was just just had the smile on my face and just thought this is a funny ridiculous but also dark and twisted kind of film which I just really enjoyed oh and it keeps on doing the most brilliant things mm. with um, its music. In particular, there's this bit of a Shostakovich string quartet that keeps on recurring, and it's grotesquely <laughs> melodramatic for the context yeah. in which it occurs. Yeah. And it just gets funnier and funnier funny. while yeah. simultaneously... It's a very famous bit of Shostakovich, yeah. if you happen to be a Shostakovich nerd. And it, I'll never be able to hear it the same way again. <laughs> it, it, just, it keeps on getting funnier while yeah. simultaneously getting darker. Yeah. Um, and he does this with a number of other music cues. Mm. They're just completely askew. And, mm. and throughout the film, I kept on thinking... You can't find new things to do with this music. You can't find new situations to squeeze out of mm. out of this concept. And he kept on doing it. It's yeah. just really good storytelling. I didn't have that response to Partisan nearly as strongly, but I, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was very yeah. pleased that I saw it. It felt it felt a much smaller film to me. That, I just think of the karaoke who, who scenes that? and um, oh yeah, are, are, yeah. Um, Ario Kleiman is that his name? I don't uh, something remember. Like, it's Australian. I think it's Ario Kleiman. And uh, it stars Vincent Cassell, yeah, Vincent Cassell a yeah. Uh, fellow who's who was fantastic in Tales. In there. He was actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. he was and probably the one person who really fit his role. Um, intriguing side note: he has a harem in each of these films. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's probably a good point to wrap up. Um, unless you guys have any other, um, I guess, I guess the one last experience I'll share from yeah. the film festival was a film that I can't in all good conscience recommend, which is um, Balak Bayan number one moments, uh, <laughs> Memories of Overdevelopment Redux 3. I've heard um, odd stories about this. Most intriguing title. Yes. yes, and it is um, a film that was started 30 years ago, I believe, and uh, shot on 16 mil and then abandoned, and then in recent years, it was completed on a um, uh, iPhones and things like Abandoned? that. Abandoned? Yeah, well, it just kind of, he just stopped shooting it. Basically, it was about the Magellan's uh, voyage around the world yeah. with a Filipino guide. And there was all this um, kind of focusing on this guide's character to do this story. It was a bit stagey and whatever. And then... Um, the director's name is Kidla Tahemik, and he also played the lead in it. And um, he 
um, is most famous for a film called Perfume Nightmare, which is still not very famous because I'd never heard of it before this year. And mm. um, but he uh, was touring around with the retrospective stuff. Decided to finish it. Spent a couple years, and instead of shooting more on film, shot on his iPhone, and wound up intercutting that past stuff with some present day stuff with his son and other stuff. And I think it's charitably described as a mess. Um, and there's a point where it actually ends and you've, I mean, I drifted off a bit during it and you're like, oh. and then the title director's cut comes up and it keeps going for another 20 <laughs> minutes. Oh my God. Um, but, um, Cadillac to came with this film yeah. and, um, he, he introduced really it. Yeah, yeah, well, it was very interesting. He And I sat next to a, a kindly gentleman beforehand who was probably a senior. Um, and he he's like, oh, yes, I, I've only gone to see a couple films. I've gone to see Best of Enemies. And he mentioned something else kind of equally classy. And there's part of me that's like, how did you wind up at this? I, I didn't quite ask him that. Um, and uh, Kidlack... Um, had come out beforehand with his like bamboo movie camera that he'd made, and and we thought that was quite cute. Um, and so at the question and answer session, where you know he actually instead of coming out normally, he comes down and does this procession in a graduation robe and does this twelve minute sort of song and dance explaining how this film is his graduation to. Hollywood, and now it's shown that he can make these, you know, make the new Rambo film, or, or loving the steps and all this stuff, and then does this whole dramatic piece, and then he talks, oh, but what are the stories of, you know, that, it, that it need to be told, and and and, it, I, and I'm just totally loving this, because it was just so <laughs> surreal and yeah. different, and kind of honest to the character of the film, and this really kindly gentleman gets up next to me and says, I can't fucking stand this anymore. Sorry about that. <laughs> and walks out. I was quite near the front. I've, I've, I think yeah. um, I've heard that quite a few people had walked out. Yeah. Um, and, and, this, and this continued for like 10 minutes. And then he came out and did a very conventional Q&A that showed that he wasn't a complete nutter. And this was just a part of his thing. And I asked him about why Werner Herzog was in his film. And he, he explained that Werner Herzog was actually cast him in the, um, I think, the Enigma of Caspar Hauser. Um, and and um, gave him advice then. And he repeats that advice in the film. Um, and, he, and, and the number of the Filipino people in the audience asked various questions and um yeah he's a very sensible interesting guy with a lot of his ideas a lot of ideas in the film that is just not really something that most people would want to experience but i am so glad that i saw it in that context with him there i've been going to new zealand film festival for you know i think 12 times now and it is by far the most memorable q and I've ever seen. I've heard the same thing from somebody else who said the film was just batshit and got really kind of dry and weird and boring. But they said the Q&A and the kind of performance afterwards was well worth the price of the yeah. admission. I don't know. I feel that having your recitation of it may have done the job for me without needing to watch the film. <laughs> Perhaps there's something about it unfolding in real time, and you, yeah, you just, yeah, and especially when it's like I was super tired. And it was eleven fifteen, yeah. and I'm like, I can't stay. I can't go. Uh, um, so for for you two, do you have any what, wrapping yeah, thoughts? Yeah, like if there was one film that I saw that I don't think either of you saw that I'd have to mention, it would be The Look of Silence, which is um, right. 
Joshua Oppenheimer's follow-up to um, The Act of Killing. I saw that reasonably late in my run, and it was as grim uh, as um, The Act of Killing, really. Which takes some doing. Yeah, so it's a documentary. It's about the atrocities in Indonesia in the 60s, but looking ahead to the effects of those today. Wherein The Act of Killing, Oppenheimer interviews a lot of the perpetrators of the violence and gets them bizarre, really weird kind of reenactments of what they did and in the same space captures kind of moments of guilt and introspection and in some ways kind of deflection about this horrific action that occurred. Here he focuses on the victims and in particular um, young guy who's uh, who turns into an optometrist and he his brother was killed in time where they were persecuting the communists quote unquote um and so he in this particular region goes to the people who were responsible for that and gives them sort of eye exams and then interviews them about how they felt about what was going on with they remembered his brother um wow uh, yeah, it, well he doesn't start off with the fact that it's his brother, but then he kind of comes into it, he can't help himself. Um, it, it's really uncomfortable, um, but it's also really interesting because it's an awful, <coughs> very emotional, very intense sort of period of history, and for him, very personal. Um, and he sort of approaches it in a very general way and then very quickly kind of narrows in with some very personal questions and then sort of says that my brother was involved in this and he died and how do you feel about this? Do you remember him? And it just gets really to this point where you feel kind of manipulated like these people are being kind of put on the spot but at the same time you feel they should be put on the spot because it's an... Because they committed genocide. Yeah, they <laughs> committed genocide and they were involved in some really awful parts of history and some pieces of history that were disgusting and that they should be held account for um and he pushes it and the the director lets him push that and it was a really uncomfortable but fascinating and necessary feeling piece of cinema yeah right yeah which won't probably come back unfortunately no but it'll be available online um, yeah, with the act of killing they made it freely available in um, indonesia where it all happened um, I imagine that it'll be available on Netflix or various other services in the coming future. Um, and I would say, if you have any sense of concern about world issues, that it's worth watching. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. I don't, but you know, I know other people do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, David, do you have any closing uh, thoughts or things that we didn't cover that... Uh... I feel completely unworthy for not having anything with um, the gravitas um, to match that one. <laughs> um, I don't think most of the films have the gravitas. Yeah, I, I, mean, know, I, I mean, that's a particular film, and I'm, yeah. I came out of that feeling... No, seriously, I know what you mean. Seriously um, hammered. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling slightly guilty because knowing that I would feel that way is precisely why I didn't go to it, and I, I feel that I should have done it. It's one of this year's essential-seeming films, and... I expected it to flatten me and I didn't want to be flattened and I chickened out. Um, instead, I went to Victoria 
Um, so there's a lot of films um, that I saw that I would like still to mention, um, but of the ones that we haven't touched on at all, um, I thought Victoria was just a really interesting film. Give me a little reminder of Victoria. It's a single-take film. German, um, right? Yes, it's set in Germany, and I believe it is a German production. Um, a couple? The director is Sebastian Schipper. Um, I think it is his, his, his... Is it his first film? Yes, I think it is. It's his debut, and he co-wrote it. Um, so it's not entirely clear whether it's a thriller, um, a romantic comedy drama, or something in between the two. Mm. Um, because it's a single-take film, and this is a form that I am particularly interested in, um, you have a slightly different relationship to time within the film than you do within most, because there are no cuts. Um, and when the camera is pointed at someone, um, you know that the people it's not pointed at are having their own storylines move forward yeah. in real time. You don't know what's happening to them. What and was the that f- one from last year that had that? Fish and Cat. Fish and Cat. So that's right, an, yeah. an Iranian kind of gothic, possibly horror film. Yeah. Um, very strange. Does very interesting things, again, yeah. with time. Um, what's interesting about that film Actually, I won't talk in length about that film, partly because um, it's good to see it not knowing too much, and partly because my brain is on the verge of shutting down and I haven't described Victoria properly yet. But it's quite a long film, and you're shackled to this present moment, which just keeps on flowing forwards, and things happen early in the film which are going to lead to consequences which may be of a romantic nature, may be of a darker nature. I'm not trying to hint either one or the other because the thing is, in the first 15 minutes of the film, it's quite clear that both of these things are possibilities. You meet this young woman in a Berlin nightclub. Um, She's from Spain, I think, Um, but she speaks fairly good German. Actually, quite a lot of the dialogue is in in English. Um, Really? Is it in English because she doesn't speak German? Yeah, that's, that's right. A common language. She doesn't speak German. English is the common oh, language. Okay. So the German is subtitled, so quite a lot of the time people are talking around her and we understand and she doesn't. Oh, okay. um, I remember now. Um, and she goes off with this group of slightly shady-seeming young guys she meets yeah. there and hence the suspense. It's not yeah. quite clear what their intentions are towards her or towards other people that they meet. Um, they seem kind of nice, but they also seem like maybe at least one of them has a possible skinhead past, and where is this going to go, and there's an obvious attraction between her and one of them, and is that what the film's going to be about? Is it yeah. going to be about something quite different? You actually don't know, and you work out quite quickly, you're not going to find out through a cut. You're going to have to wait and see what happens yeah. um, in exactly the same amount of yeah. time that it takes her to find out yeah. which is its own very interesting kind of suspense it's well written mm. um, the fact that it's over two hours long and it's filmed in a single cut is kind of a bravura technical achievement in itself so it's just really interesting that they managed to keep it going um, and that it acquires its own particular kind of momentum actually a single, single cut or one of those ones that no, pretends to be a... uh, now I've seen at least one article which claims that there were cuts at a couple of points that were yeah. very skillfully edited together but I've also seen the editor claim um, that they shot it in a single take oh, okay. starting yeah. at 5am on a Berlin morning yeah. and by 8 o'clock they were done. Oh yeah, so, I'd um, be inclined to believe the editor. 
Was there an editor? I mean, if you just like... Well, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Did I say editor? I meant, I meant director. Well, yeah, um, yeah camera person or director. Like, yeah. There's always someone to cast aspersions. Yeah, well, I mean, there are films that seem to be that weren't, like Birdman is the obvious example. Uh, well, Birdman um, had some really obvious moments of uh, trickery in it. So. But it's just, it's a different film. It's an yeah. interestingly different film, well-made, strong characters. I spoke to a couple of people who liked it less than I did, a couple who liked it at least as much as I did. I don't think as many people saw it as would have enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so if it does happen to come back, I would um, I'd warmly recommend it. I know at least one other person who was the film of the festival for. Yeah, no, I can, I can quite believe that. Cool. Mm. On that note, um, I'm sure there's dozens of other films we saw, but we can probably yeah. wrap it up here. But um, thanks to uh, the film festival for a good 2015. Yes, yeah, thank you. And hopefully um, thanks to the distributors for bringing a lot of these good films back. I, and I bring am, as many back as you can. I am, a, I am feeling very good about the fact that, you know, in the previous year we had It Follows and Force Majeure yeah. and Salt of the Earth and Winter Sleep and some of the other films from that year come back. And I'm hoping that um, yeah. distributors will feel similarly empowered this year. I mean, we've already had unexpectedly The Tribe come back yeah. and uh, Dope is coming and Banksy Does New York and Tangerine. And uh, we'll see what else makes it. I feel yeah. good about all of those with the one exception of The Tribe. Well, maybe I'll go see it and we can have a follow-up. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. wish you would. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad to see Tangerine coming back. Mm, likewise. Cool. Okay, yeah. till next time, it's Doug. It's Jacob. And it's Best Worst Podcast. Cheers.